On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. You're listening to The Ackerman Year. It's part seven slash month seven. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And our guest this week is the esteemed American film blogger, Girish Shambu. Girish, how are you doing? Oh, I'm well, thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. I'm a big fan of the podcast, a big fan of Ackerman. So I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And... Uh, this month, we are here to discuss what I think Kate and I at least agree is maybe one of the, um, the, the, the warmest, most, maybe most accessible groupings of, uh, of Ackerman films. Uh, it's one of our most cohesive groupings. It's over a relatively short uh, time period of just a few years. Those films in question, and the, uh, the reason for this grouping will be pretty obvious as we go on, is uh, Les Années 80 from 1983. The one-hour documentary One Day Pina Asked, also released in 1983. And then we are zipping ahead a little bit to uh, a project that we've already mentioned several times that was uh, the focus of Ackerman's development for years, and that's uh, Golden 80s, also released in America as Window Shopping, uh, 1986. Before we get into that, uh, Girish, as usual, we want to hear uh, what's your relationship to Ackerman like? How'd you get into this stuff? So I uh, became like a full-on, full-blown uh, cinephile in the 90s. And a big part of that had to do with my uh, discovering Cinematheque Ontario in um, Toronto. And so I live in Buffalo, which is about two hours away from Toronto. And I would drive up to Toronto to catch uh, retrospectives, films, etc. And it was a real revelation for me. And James Quant was uh, one of the key programmers there. And he turned me on to he and Susan Oxtoby at the time turned me on to so much uh, great cinema that I didn't know existed. And that's kind of how I discovered Ackerman. Um, I think my first um, kind of knockout experience was when at the Toronto International Film Festival, I think it was the year 2000, uh, I saw La Captive uh, that mm. she made and she was there for a very extended Q&A. Uh, the few times I've had a, a chance to see her, she's accompanied her films with like a very leisurely extended um, uh, kind of slightly prickly, um, <laughs> debate-rich kind of Q&A. And so that was a fantastic uh, screening. And then I drove a couple of years later to George Eastman House in Rochester, which is about an hour, hour and a half away from where I live, um, to see Jean Dielman, which I had been assured would never be available in any form as long as I lived. Um, this was like 2002 or so. So I said, you know, I, ha I have to like find a way to see this film. So when I got there, the intro, uh, in the intro, the person who was introducing it said that it was the only surviving 16 millimeter English language print in the US. And oh. um, I, was just, cow. I was just like blown away by the film. I remember driving home late at night by myself. Uh, my head just buzzing with, uh, with thoughts about this film. Um, and then much later, um, you know, just realizing that all these films were coming to DVD and I was able to catch up with, uh, you know, most of her, uh, a good chunk of her work on DVD and then streaming later. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, Simon. 
Uh, no, that's a perfect answer. Adrian Martin and I founded this journal called Lola um, yes, about yeah. 10 years ago. And then and we were uh, able to get through our friend Nicole Brené, um, a long interview that she did, that Ackerman did. It was the longest interview on the web uh, with Ackerman um, called the Pajama Interview. And then we, we kind of um, got the rights, et cetera, and published it on, in Lola. Um, and I remember just, you know, uh, we, it got so much interest because she's so honest in that interview yeah. and, and it goes off in so many different directions. It's so thought provoking. It's like the best kind of interview. Honestly, Gersh, I had completely, I knew that you and Adrian um, had founded Lola. I just hadn't put together in my mind, of course, that you guys had published the translation of the pajama interview. I love the pajama interview. I read it constantly for the podcast. So I highly recommend everyone out there find it. And Lola was a wonderful journal too. It, it's no longer, it lasted for a set time, right? And then it, it finished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I, I, I don't think we've, uh, uh, our last issue was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the archives are still up and we encourage people to check it out. Once again, one of those projects that is a very difficult to just summarily explain what it, what it even is um, to like a first time viewer, and also I think like I, I don't know as as a as a as a form or, or a pitch, I think is maybe an interesting one for uh, filmmakers to think about. So, uh, Kate, as best you can, uh, what is Les Années Eighty? Uh, okay, so yeah, as Simon says, it is a little difficult to describe it, but I'll start with just the background about how the film came together. Um, so it was made in, yeah, released in 83, made in the early 80s, obviously, as part of Ackerman's attempt to raise money for a film that at the time was going to be called Le Galerie de la Toisson d'Or, which is the name of an actual mall in Brussels where Ackerman's father and mother worked, where they had their leather goods store. Uh, and it translates in English to like the Gallery of the Golden Fleece, which is of course adjacent to the Argonauts reference, but it makes me laugh because it's like the mall is like fleecing you, the Golden Fleece, that makes me laugh. Um, but anyway, so that's what the original name of this film was. And at the time she had a screenplay that she'd written after writing the film that she made with the students in Brussels called Hotel des Acacias, uh, which at the time, I, we, we talked about that briefly on the podcast. I should say, I didn't realize at the time that Ackerman had also written that film. Uh, so she she co-wrote Hotel des Acacias with a woman named Michelle Blondiel, I think. So anyway, based on that, she wrote a, another screenplay, which would become the basis for Golden 80s, the longer film. Um, and she submitted that script to the... Uh, what is the name of this body? The uh, To the Selection Commission, uh, the film aid body of the French community of Belgium. And they told her that, you know, they were kind of interested, but that she was a quote unquote experimental filmmaker and they didn't have any faith that she would be able to make this sort of big musical that she was proposing. Um, and so they gave her a small amount of money to make what she referred to as a quote unquote four inch model of the film um, to make a small version of the film. 
And, uh, and then after doing that, she decided to edit this material together into its own film to attract producers. Uh, and then at the same time, she submitted it to festivals and it was chosen for the uh, Uncertain Regard section of Cannes and circulated in other film festivals as well. Yeah, and um, there's a bit more to say about it, but the only thing I think I haven't said yet is that she co-wrote the film um, or the credited co-writer on this film, on <laughs> Les Années 80, is uh, Jean Gruel, uh, who's also worked with Rivette, Godard, Rossellini, so a very sort of well-established author. Um, and the music, this is a musical, right, that we see here kind of being put together, uh, was co-written by Ackerman and a composer named Mark Heruwe. Uh, and so there's more to say about all of that, but that's sort of the basic, the basics of the, how the film came together. It's a promotional item, theoretically, that also exists. It has its own little life to itself, which is, I, I can't think, are there other films like this? <laughs> I mean, no, this is sort of like, this is one of the kind of, um, ways people speak about this film is that it's a really unusual project in that it is a quote unquote making of film about a film that won't be released until three years later and of course it's not actually a making of because you realize eventually that all of the material that you see here well i guess in a certain sense it is it is making of but in a different way than we're used to thinking of now it's all of the sequences that are being shot and all of the rehearsals that are taking place here many much of it is quite different by the time you get to golden 80s so many of the actors and actresses have uh, departed uh, in the in, goal, in in the eighties that we see here. And by the way, maybe I'm just going to use window shopping. I'm going to try to use window shopping for the second film just to differentiate them because the titles are a little confusing. Uh, but in the er then I'll forget. I'm sure and just say golden eighties. <laughs> in the earlier film, we have Aurore Clément uh, is in one of the roles. Um, uh, Magali Noel, who played the character of Ida or Ida in. Um, Meetings with Anna, the, and there are a few other figures here that are in the first film who have left by the time that Ackerman got funding for the second film. Some of the characters have been sort of rewritten or condensed by the later film. And obviously the staging and the sets that they use are all different um, here. But it is still very clearly a kind of document of the process of making a film. And there's a lot more to be said about that, but that's maybe a good place to start. Girish, I don't know about you, but I personally found that when I saw my first batch of Ackerman films, both Les Années 80 and Golden 80s or Window Shopping, uh, were, they were presented in tandem at, uh, at TIFF. And um, ever since, so I kind of think of them as a double feature personally. Um, and I, I personally, I find that like, is an 80 kind of both undercuts and bolsters my opinion of golden 80s is that fair you think yeah i think i i would totally agree with that and um you know i myself also saw them in a in a peculiar double bill um so i'm an i've always i've always been a non-metropolitan kind of cinephile i, I live in, i've lived in buffalo for the last you know many many years and um in the 90s, when I first became a cinephile, I used to mail order uh, VHS rentals from this place called Home Film Festival. It was a little company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And so they would like send you a box of VHS tapes. So I think it was like three tapes for 20 bucks or something. And you had like a week to watch them and return them. And it was like a prepaid postage label. You put it back in the mail. Huh. And I remember... 
I know. Yeah. And so, and they had an incredible selection, very broad selection. And they had both uh, these two, they had both these films, but they had special markings on them, which was like uh, PQ, which meant poor quality. So it was like, <laughs> an, it was like a very distant, you know, dub, um, a very faded VHS. But, you know, I was like completely absorbed by these two films, more so by golden 80s, be, just because the, um, 80s being a, a more experimental film and also the, the the image quality and the sound quality being poor on this uh, multi-removed uh, generation dub made it a little harder for me to get into it. So I've never actually seen um, the 80s on the big screen. I would love to. I think I would appreciate it much more. Um, than I have in the relatively poor quality um, that I've seen it in. But uh, but yes, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, there's a lot of give and take between these two films, a wonderful conversation uh, that um, that can be staged between these two films. I mean, truly, there's nothing I love more than reminiscing about how I saw Ackerman films the first time. So I, this, it, I will say too, I definitely saw these on VHS back in the day. I mean, for the longest time, that was the only way they were available. Once the VHS of Golden 80s went away, then there, or sorry, once the VHS of, 80, of the 80s went away, there was nothing as far as I know. There still isn't any official way to watch the film. Um, but uh, yeah, so I saw them on VHS at, I think, the video store where I worked. Um, which just shout out to video stores. You know, I met my husband at that video store. I met Simon at a video store. That's where all the good people hang out is video stores um, or apparently mail order video stores. <laughs> but uh, So anyway, so the I, I also have a weird memory, Gears, of seeing the 80s on a screen somewhere. Like I have a distinct memory of seeing it as a film but I cannot tell you where that was or if I just sort of maybe invented that, like maybe it never actually happened and I just dreamed it, but I have a distinct memory of seeing it on a screen. Um, and it's interesting because I hadn't seen golden eighties in a good copy until just now, because it's been restored of course by the cinematech and we'll, we can talk about that a bit later, but um, for me, maybe it's because of seeing it on seeing the eighties on a big screen. I, I have always felt a bit the reverse. I've always actually preferred the eighties to golden 80s which which many critics have written about that the earlier one is sort of maybe not their favorite they like it more for different reasons and we can maybe talk about why that would be or not but i do think i take your point Gers, that i actually think my opinion of golden 80s has gone up dramatically watching it on the restoration and again as always just reading about it more always sort of interests me more in each film the copy of les années 80 that is circular that is circulating among for example zoomer cinephile discords uh, is like not great quality. It's I don't know if it's better or worse than the quality you saw on that VHS uh, gearish, but it's definitely not great. Which and it seems to me like it is maybe one of those instances of the uh, of the available quality really having such a profound effect on the content that it's it's really difficult to to decouple. And I actually think it really bolsters the content uh, in some ways. Like it really it. It it can't help but feel like Les Années eighty versus window shopping. It's kind of like like a band's raw demos versus like like a like a, a too polished major label debut yeah. or something, uh, if only by contrast. Um, but uh, but I do think Les Années eighty has its own charms, like separate from window shopping as well. How do you feel about it? Do you have a not like we need to rank things, but do you have <laughs> yeah. a preference of of which one you feel pulled to more? It's really tough to say. Um, I, I think I sort of um, on this that we we sort of had an original recording date, which uh, had to get pushed back because uh, some because uh, of some technical issues, and it gave me a chance to to watch all these films again, again, again. 
Uh, and um, now I don't know. I mean, I think they, I think they end up in such different registers somehow, despite the fact that they contain so much of the same material. Uh, and I think it's just there's something going on in Les Années 80 with sort of the juxtaposition of this highly stylized performance style uh, in this, you know, gritty realist sort of documentary setting that is just a to- that, that has a total different set of pleasures than the sort of more potentially arch style of, uh, of window shopping. Um, and that's maybe that's the most, most important distinction for me between the two. As Simon says, it, it has a bit of a, I mean, yeah, it has a bit of a gritty feel to it, mostly because you can tell that a lot of it is being shot in a very kind of blank rehearsal space. They seem to be in sort of rooms that have very little distinguishing features. They're just empty walls. And then there's a kind of, there's a singular set that they have access to that has columns on the right-hand side, and they have people walking through this set. But until you get to the end of the film, which has a slightly different uh, feel, the first two thirds of it are all set in these spaces. And uh, what I've seen people point out is that the film moves through a kind of, um, how to say it, a sort of arc or a progression where you start from nothing. You start from zero, which is the black screen, and you move through these different levels towards the idea of kind of every time you're adding on a piece of what cinematic production is. You're moving from nothing to a finished, a quote unquote finished product. Um, Because the film starts with, yeah, blank screen. You hear Ackerman's voice engaging with another woman's voice. I think later you realize it's Megaly Noel, I think, but um, speaking back and forth and Ackerman is giving her directions about how to say a line. I forget the line. It's something like at your age, sorrows pass quickly or something. And uh, she says it over and over and over again. And Ackerman is sort of doing these really minute like recommendations to shift it over and over. And then we go from there to there's a shot of shoes on the ground and and a woman's feet going in and out of the shoes. And then from there we go to casting and we start seeing people coming into the frame that are being given roles. Although we only piece that together a little bit. It's sort of, you have to figure out a lot of this stuff on your own. And there's things like screen tests that are happening here. You see actors moving from reading on book to reading off book. You see different variations of the same scene over and over and over again, blocked differently or shot differently. Um, And there's the rest of the arc goes even further. By the time you get to the last section of the film, Ackerman is actually shooting in 35 millimeter. Um, The early part is, video right like the early part is shot in video or is it is it yeah it is video right uh the early part is video and then the last two three scenes are shot in 35 and there you get fully costumed actors on a set that's been dressed it's of course not the final set but it's the a set that's been dressed and so you move from the sort of nothing at the beginning through all of this variation over repetitively over and over again until you get to this quote-unquote finished product at the end which is really just three scenes from the film I also like the fact that the film ends in a very unexpected way. There's this, actually, um, wait, you know what? I'm already confusing the two films together. <laughs> this is the problem, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something very embarrassing. So isn't it um, Les Années 80s that ends with uh, 
next year in Jerusalem line. Yes, yes. Okay, that's, so, it ends okay, on so the roof. I, yeah. Right. So that's um, yeah. right. So there's a third section after the first hour on video and then about 15 minutes of the 35 millimeter musical numbers fully fleshed out. And then this kind of coda at the end. And uh, that's such a fascinating, um, completely unlikely way to end this film with this 360 degree shot of Brussels. And then this line at the end, which Kate, maybe you could... Um, Ex, uh, talk about or explain if, if, if you like yeah if i next year well, I in just, jerusalem I, i'll just fill in a little bit because it's quick Gersh, and then you can keep talking it's um a line that's said during passover uh during seder in the the seder dinner and passover next year in jerusalem um and it's always the kind of idea of like i mean it's it's associated in some senses with sort of a zionist angle but not i don't think necessarily with like the explicit road of zionism but the idea of like the the jews will eventually be together in Zion. This is the where it, yeah, in Israel, next year in Israel. I think maybe the most striking thing about Les Années 80s for me is the way it just foregrounds like the labor of filmmaking. There are so many films about filmmaking. It's one, it's, it's a pet subject for so many filmmakers in the history of cinema. And yet this one feels different to me than, than most of those other films because, um, because of its like endless trial and error, and it's the mistakes, the coaxings, um, the repetitions. And of course, uh, this is very much like an audition and rehearsal film. And in French, of course, the word for rehearsal is repetition. So it's like literalized in this film. And so even though there are other films about filmmaking that show multiple takes, for example, they don't go as far for me as this one, which is um, kind of repeats, the, you know, often the same line, the same fragments over and over again, and really shows you the work involved in uh, in, in building up uh, a film. And many of those experiments may go nowhere, and only some of them may actually make it into the finished film. So I really like how it's a very raw film in that way, and and gives me a sense of the labor involved in filmmaking. There was a major, major, major or major-ish filmmaker who was recently talking about how. When he's on set, he feels like uh, like like he's he's performing or doing a one act play or something. And one of the things I really like about Les Années Eighty is that it's another maybe it, it may even be underrated in this respect uh, as a showcase of sort of Ackerman the performer. Uh, there's some yes. really some very very interesting stuff. If like me, you've uh, watched all these Ackerman films and uh, and really get a kick out of seeing Ackerman do stuff on camera. This is definitely this definitely needs to be on your list. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, um, just to just to add to that, Simon, I just re remembered that I was reading just now um, about this memorial for her when she passed away. It was in New York City in 2016, and apparently they they closed that memorial by playing the scene where she's directing Magali Noel, uh, and so um, just to show that uh, she was a very engaged and kind of involved directorial presence on set and also her love of music the way she spontaneously starts to sing and so just the creative act of directing captured in like a very bodily fashion and a very full fashion you know words and music um uh, her body gesturing uh, etc so all of this could be kind of encapsulated in this very short clip from lezani 80 that just captures her as a director and the labor that, that she performs on set
Yeah, those sequences, because first you see her uh, conducting um, Megaly Noel, and then you see her recording a, a different song herself. She's singing the song. So there's these two sequences sort of basically back to back that oh, I just, they're like unbearably charming. Like I just find them so adorable. It is, it's so hard to not absolutely fall in love with her. Um, I mean, it's, as you say, it's, it's just this sort of full body kind of joyful thing. But it's also, again, it kind of connects to what she says about herself, which is that whenever she's on camera, things get a little Chaplin-esque. Like, she gets very carried away. At one point during her conducting, she actually sort of twirls around and twirls out of frame because she's just so excited. Um, it's really, it is just lovely. And I feel like that those moments, for me, are the kind of cap on or the peak maybe of, of the film sort of joyfulness because I think that's always what I really love about this film. And it's odd because it doesn't, you wouldn't think that a film that is so much about these kind of, yeah, really uh, almost interminable uh, repetitions of the same kind of sequences and dialogues over and over and over again would be this joyful. But I just absolutely find it joyful. And I, I not everybody feels that way, I think. I, I maybe oversold it to my husband when we watched it, but I was like, this is incredible. Ackerman is it? It's amazing. And he he didn't, like, he found it actually quite um like claustrophobic or something or too kind of reflexive or too tied into itself and maybe there's something to that because he's never seen golden 80s and so there's this sense of like if you don't have a kind of larger framework on this film i do think it maybe would read quite differently but for me it is it is ultimately actually much more joyful than golden 80s and i think that's maybe purposeful and i have some ideas about that that i can say later but um hmm. but yeah simon so you so you enjoy ackerman dancing too uh, yeah i mean that is definitely i think the if for the real heads that has to be the highlight of this film i think um this is definitely one of those for the real heads projects uh, i mean i mean I, I guess if you're into month seven of the ackerman year you must you must be a real head so uh <laughs> hopefully you'll enjoy it half as much as we did um yeah i love seeing ackerman conduct and then and then perform there's um there's kind of a punk rock quality to her singing voice that i really that yes. i really appreciate um, and that, in fact, uh, I, I would I would have been totally welcome in gold. There's a little bit of you know, as they say, punk and new wave uh, in um, in uh, window shopping, but they could always have used a little more. Everything could use a little bit more punk. Um, okay, well, so what are some what are some of the other things that I wanted to say about this film that we haven't gotten to yet? So, okay, I have a couple of different things. So, one that I wanted to point out because I think I've seen I think Adam Roberts in the in the um, Ackerman Handbook from their screening series. I think he hints at this, but I haven't seen anyone else talk about this anywhere. Which is that for me, the early part of this film uh, where you have the the moving from the kind of black screen to the voice to everything. It's both Ackerman referencing ideas of kind of cinematic process or, or as she says, sort of investigating this question of like how you take elements of the real and turn and how they produce a fiction. And she's very, um, how to say that? Like she, the way she speaks about those ideas, it's that the elements of the real are going to dictate what the final film is as much as she is. It's not this sort of mastery over the whole scenario, which I actually think has a lot of uh, echoes with the Pina Bausch process that we'll see in the next film. But um, anyway, so this idea of film process on the one hand, but then for me, it very much ties into Ackerman's sort of uh, uh, scenario that she often invokes, which is the... Um, 
the biblical scene at the beginning of Genesis, the idea of uh, create of coming to creation, like creation coming into being, where first there's the word, and then there's light, and then there's you know people, and then there's it's she. I mean, I've I've seen many critics talk about that in relation to something like Jean Dielman or um, oh, I'm gonna forget what the other film was that oh the more recent one that we just watched, Man with a Suitcase. Anyway, different films, but I find that fascinating that she's making almost a link here between the idea of like cinematic creation and human creation. And maybe that idea will come back uh, again as we move forward. Listening to you talk about this, it also reminded me that um, the beginning of the film could also be read in, a, in, an, in an alternative way as well, which is like with so much of Ackerman, there's like this strong kind of modernist influence and modernist sensibility in, in this filmmaking. And so um, to take a film about singing and dancing uh, and somehow begin with the black screen. It's like a withholding of spectacle in the very first moment, which is almost a little perverse and, and yet, you know, uh, enhances the suspense. So I find that there's a, there's this modernist sensibility plays out in many ways in this film. So this is one way. And another way would be the way that uh, there's like this rupture between like an actor and the role that they play. Yes. There's no yeah. necessarily, there's no natural fit between them. Uh, like for example, Aurore Clément and Magali Noel, who are in this film, turned out not to be in uh, window shopping because they had other uh, demands or whatever. But still, the fact that they weren't in the subsequent film means that there's no like essentialist link between a character and like the actor who's supposed to play them. So it's also like a bit of a, a rebuke of the star system. It's a um, and uh, this fracturing of this unity between actor and character. So I think that's that's also another theme that I see in this in this film. Uh, this uh, modernist touches all the way through the film. Yes, absolutely. The that was sort of next on my list to bring up was the actor uh, performer thing as well. Um, yeah, I've seen various critics talk about that. I think Marion Schmidt talks about it at length. But yeah, I mean, it's not even it's not just Aurora Clément and Megley Noel. It's the there's the main characters of what will become golden eighties, the figures, Lily, Mado, Robert, they're all played by multiple people in, in this, like we see at least three, but I think in Robert's case, we see like five or six different male actors playing the part of Robert in the various rehearsals and performances. Um, and yeah, I mean, it works very similarly, I think in, in regards to what you were saying, Gersh, about labor to yeah un undermine the idea of a kind of spectacle as self-presenting right this idea of the 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 sort of brechtian um modernist attack on uh <laughs> on spectacle and fiction as not requiring labor to make it right that this is what allows spectacle and narrative to uh, normalize ideology, right? To naturalize ideologies this is the idea that no one had to make it. Nobody had to work to bring this thing into being. And so Ackerman here, of course, is, is in many, many ways showing us all of the different work that goes into this. But then, as you say, there's no natural fit between anything here. Everything is a construction. And this film is, you know, quite literally a deconstruction of various An interesting divergence between styles here to me is that in the Pina doc, we see these you know dance characters or whatever that seal that seem directly tied to who is playing them um in multiple ways and here and ackerman is doing completely the opposite in these in 80 where it's like pretty much completely depersonalized yes it's um i've also seen people kind of bring up these ideas in relation to gender which uh will be very present throughout this as we talk about golden 80s too but the um the idea that both 
80s and golden 80s are kind of dealing with this question of, hmm, yeah, the, the role that things like musicals, popular media, mass media play in reproducing ideas of gender. And as someone, oh, I'm forgetting who exactly says this, but um, it might have been Stephen Shaviro, but the idea that this early film really, it shows you the idea of people being, or maybe it's Hoberman actually, being kind of trained into their roles, women particularly being trained into their roles of what quote unquote constitutes a woman, you know, the, the idea of the woman as the visual spectacle, the kind of romantic love object, that there is quite literally a training happening here that as this one is Shaviro, that as, as other people have pointed out, you know, blurs the lines between the idea of creating a character for a film and the idea of kind of subjectivity being brought into being in, in regular life, in normal experience, right? That each are kind of created in this sort of repetitive, um, and performative in the Judith Butlerian sense, performative um, sense. And so this, this film is sort of very much kind of like probing these questions of what makes gender. Like you, you could imagine here that the men and the, the male and female actors would be inverted for some of these rehearsals. Like it feels like that almost could happen. It doesn't, but I feel like the film could very much go in that direction because it's so invested in kind of pulling these things apart. Um, yeah. And, and um, Kate, you're right. Um, uh, Marion Schmidt's book has um, a lot of great discussion that I learned from um, in terms of performance and acting and roles. And so I had not read uh, her book until you asked me to come on the podcast. So, <laughs> so, uh, and I'm like, oh my God. So this was a real discovery for me. So I discovered quite a few things in, uh, when I watched this, uh, watched these films and, and I was doing a little bit of research for this podcast. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you suggested this theme. Did you notice that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we, we noticed that there were some people of color in Lezani yes. that did not make it to window shopping. I'm, I'm just kind of curious about the process uh, that led to that. Like there was a, there was a man uh, of like North African, Algerian or Arab descent who made that speech about, um, you know, we must be strong and we must grow this expansionist kind of speech that Robert makes at the end. Uh, and also uh, there was a woman also of African descent who, who sang in the film. And so I, I wasn't sure exactly what happened between the two films. I know that there were ye a few years past. And I also read somewhere, I forget it was Marion Schmidt's uh, book or somewhere else, that um, uh, she actually had to hire uh, French people uh, rather than Belgian people in order to cut costs for window shopping. So, but, but, but Kate, I was wondering if you knew anything. I, I have not come across any research beyond that. That would have been my guess as well. It's simply that those were people that she had found in Belgium and she would have worked with them if the funding hadn't sort of dictated that she move it to France. And again, as we know, it's not like France doesn't have actors of color. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure exactly where, what the deal was with that. But I found that quite noticeable too, actually, Gersh. I was quite surprised because when you get to the final film, it's, isn't it a hundred percent white? It's Lily White. Yeah, yes. there's no, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, yeah. So that is, um, something. And I'm not, I, I again, I, I, part of me, like, you're always like, oh, well, maybe you could sort of credit it as a kind of, um, 
indictment or something of, of the sort of whiteness, but I'm not really sure I would want to extend quite that much credit to the golden eighties. I mean, maybe, but that feels a bit of a bridge too far. So. And I, I, and sure. I don't mean my comment to be like a, a critique because, you know, yeah. we all know the problems of like throwing people of color into something just to add a splash of color to add quote unquote diversity. You know, that, that's a practice that's been normalized so much these days. It's, it's really disturbing to see, but uh, it was just, this is, you know, 40 years ago. So I, I was just kind of wondering if there was like a production history there that uh, I wasn't aware of, but yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like there is still, this is something we actually haven't said that much on this podcast, but there is like a huge body of research about Ackerman's films, um, which primarily has to do with sort of critical writing and analysis and interpretation of the individual films. It's still heavily skews towards the 1970s films and towards her um, kind of very polished feature films. There are some in-depth books that deal with Ackerman's work. However, they tend to be, I mean, sort of the production histories of work. However, they tend to be a bit more on the French side. Um, there is a book that's called The Auto Portrait that was published in conjunction with a series of her films being shown at uh, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, I think in the mid-2000s. I forget when this is. And uh, the Auto Portrait book is fabulous. I mean, it has a lot of incredible stuff in it. But I think personally, there is still so much more research to be done about Ackerman's films and the production histories. And hopefully the fact that this... Um, the uh, Ackerman Foundation exists now in Belgium. We'll start to kind of create the institutional framework that might support that. Um, I don't think we've talked about this here yet either, but in the wake of Ackerman's passing, there was a lot of sort of like consternation and activity amongst academics and filmmaker uh, people who are connected to Ackerman because there was never to say this Ackerman was not always the best about keeping track of the rights of her films when she was alive and so many of the films belong to kind of different producers different people she, there was no sort of central agency that had control over all of her films which is part of why so many of them hadn't been restored and still haven't been restored and this was the the impetus to create the Ackerman Foundation so there's a group of different people involved in that um and hopefully that just continues to be the case because I agree with you, Gersh. There would be so many. I really am always a little frustrated that I can't find more written down about the kind of background details for a lot of the productions of these films. But um, no, that's I great. Want that's, there great. To be more. that's great. That's uh, great. Thank you. Thank you for saying all that. In fact, um, I came on this podcast after you invited me, mainly because you know I I love the. I love what I've learned about Ackerman's work on, from the previous episodes, and it was fascinating. And, and Kate, uh, I still remember when I discovered your writing first, it was when you did a, a long essay on the cover story, Cinemascope cover story on Ackerman. Was that right after she passed away? It was. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So like 2015-ish. Um, and so, you know, I've been a big fan of your writing since then. And uh, so this was this is like a chance for me to... I don't know, learn, learn about Ackerman from the two of you. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually learning a lot here. So thank you. Garish, thank you for uh, what, becoming the latest in our installation of top tier guests who flatter us on the show. <laughs> uh, and, and, why wouldn't, and why wouldn't we? We will, we will not forget. We will not forget. That's right. You'll get your reward in heaven or something. <laughs> you'll, you'll get your Chantal Ackerman challenge coin in the mail. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Um, okay. Oh, wait, I was, oh, let me say the one last thing, because it'll help lead up to the other film, and then we can transition to Pino. But um, yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is that section at the end where she does, we, the film, she wraps up the the, the big scenes in the um, 
that are shot on 35 mil. And, and maybe once we get to golden 80s, we can reference back which ones turn up there. But uh, but then, yeah, the camera moves onto the roof of, of somewhere in Brussels and we get this 360 pan of Brussels. And she says thank you to everyone who helped with the making of the film, which is very charming. And it, it includes like, she's thanking like Edith Piaf and people and Marlena Dietrich, as well as the, the actual actors and stuff that are in the film. Um, and then she says this line uh, next year in Jerusalem. And um, this is Adam Roberts sort of makes this point, but I, I thought it was great, which is the idea that that kind of su summates or summarizes so much of the feeling of this film, which is the idea that even as you, you even as the film seems to be moving towards an arc of something finished in the latter half or semi-finished, the whole thing is very much pointing towards another object that doesn't exist yet, right? Either another this other film, or in the case of the next year in Jerusalem, like another time period. That there is all it is always sort of like gesturing beyond itself. And people have talked about this in different ways. I've seen, I think it's Gwendolyn or Audrey Foster talks about it as the film being this kind of postmodern simulacrum, right? A copy without an original, which is, you know, I like that. Um, or, you know, again, just this idea of a kind of like the cinephile's wish, right? The cinephile's wish for this perfect cinephilic object, right? That's always a little bit out of our actual reach. And we're in this space of process instead of the kind of perfect perfection of the end. And so I'll just to say that I, you know, people have said, I think Adam Roberts says maybe this is why critics like this first film more than they like the second one is because of this kind of wish feeling mm. of it that it's, yeah. And so yeah. Anyway. The, you're seeing the journey rather than the destination, which we're always told is the good bit, right? There is something about not just the not just the uh, the consumer's wish or whatever, but also the the filmmaker's wish of transcending budget limitations and you know getting to you know create the the MGM musical of their dreams. All right. So next up on the program, um, we are sticking to the same calendar year. Also, just so people understand that, like during this period, she wasn't just up to this. Of course, she did a bunch of other stuff that we've already talked about, uh, including uh, Man with a Suitcase, including Family Business, including J'ai Fin J'ai Froid. Um, Letters Home came out the same year, also as uh, as Golden Eighties, aka Window Shopping. So. Just and in, I mean, Ackerman was not one to stay still for long, but even by her standards, this is a very busy period. It'll seem even more busier when I explain more busier. It'll even seem more busy when I explain something that uh, will be relevant for Golden Ladies after. Uh, that will bring us to One Day Pina Asked, uh, which is a roughly one hour documentary um, feature short, what special, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, on the subject of Pina Bausch. Um, who I guess cinephiles will probably most likely know from the Vim Vendors 3D documentary from uh, many Tellurides ago, uh, Kate, um, <laughs> yes. uh, which is which is a very different presentation of uh, of Pina's work. Um, definitely also worth your time, I think. Uh, but um, anyway, yes, uh, Kate. Uh, how so? How does how does Ackerman end up on this project? Uh, so she was commissioned uh, to make this film as part of a French television series called Repères sur le Modern Dance, um, which was which were individual kind of hour long programs made about different choreographers uh, working in Europe, I think, at that point. Um, 
And so then she she filmed the troupe for, I think it's five weeks while they were on tour in Germany, Italy, and France. Babette Mangolt is here shooting uh, again, as well as someone named Luc Benhamou. Uh, and so there's sort of more, I mean, there's a little bit more to say about that and I can give, I'll give some more details about, uh, Pina Bausch as well, but, um, but that's the sort of basics for this film. I think it was made relatively quickly and Ackerman was familiar with Bausch's work before. I think I said on the podcast when we talked about Golden Ladies that I had never been able to find, or sorry, not Golden Ladies, about Tutunui, that I had never been able to find proof that Ackerman had seen uh, Bausch's work when she made that film, but I felt like they were linked. I have now finally found some proof that dates Ackerman having seen Bausch's work prior to that. So she was familiar with it for at least a couple of years before this, and she was sort of already a fan. And... Um, I mean, Ackerman says very interesting things about it because in the film herself, in the film itself, we see Ackerman late in the film talking about her experience with Bausch and she's saying things like, you know, that the emotions that come from the stage are so strong and they make me happy, but I also feel like I have to sort of close my eyes against them sometimes. And and I think early on, Ackerman found the, the dances that Bausch's troupe does to be very kind of, yeah, happiness-inducing, very, like, beautiful. But as Ackerman herself says as she kind of got some more distance on the dances while making this film she eventually kind of came to feel them to be more like sadistic horror amidst beauty that she really kind of felt later that it was that the um that, that Bausch's sort of ability to kind of create these really beautiful and engaging scenarios was in some sense of something like a trap to kind of bring you into this space that Bausch is so associated with like Ackerman of working in the post uh, in post-Holocaust Germany in the post-Holocaust period of kind of quote uh, someone I think I've heard Bausch refer to as like a choreographer of the ruins um, of what's left afterwards. And, and so maybe now just to keep getting us going here, I'll say a bit more about Bausch then and we can turn it over to others. But um so on a previous podcast, I'd mentioned Bausch, and there I incorrectly stated that Bausch was the founder of this dance forum known as Tanz Theater or Dance Theater. That's not actually true. The term is associated with her teacher, a man named Kurt Joos or Kurt Joss, who was working in the 1920s in, in Weimar, Germany, in expressionist dance uh, and in Vienna. Uh, and it was also apparently influenced by Brecht, the development of this form. And it, the idea is, is that it's a sort of plotful or kind of narrative dance form um, that is kind of co-created alongside the music. So it's not the idea of sort of using preset movements to create a choreography to a, a piece of already existing music, which, of course, is what so much dance is. Um, and then in the next generation of dancers who were trained by Juice and others, uh, Pina Bausch is amongst them. So were people working in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, and, uh, and so, again, here you have a kind of dance form that's linked to modern dance. And for people who are not dance nerds like me, um, the history of dance in the West is is predominantly ballet uh, until you get to the early decades of the 20th century. There you have the emergence of modern dance with figures like Martha Graham that is a, a, it tends to be a bit of a, a response to or challenge against ballet in the idea that there is more emotion involved, more expression, and that links up with something like Tanz Theater here. However, maybe unlike the dance theater that uh, Bausch uses, modern dance would eventually develop its own repertory of um, kind of set movements and forms that people would use. 
And so then after modern dance, you then have a next generation of dancers who are sometimes associated with like postmodern dancers like Yvonne Rayner, who would push even further against that idea of the repertory as still requir requiring a kind of training or levels of mastery or skill to be a quote unquote modern dancer. The next generations of dance often reject even that much. Um, and so dance theaters to me seems to hover between those two things because it does require some level of skill, but it also is very invested in this idea of kind of investigating ideas of forms of motion that are more associated with the ordinary or non-spectacular than with like trained styles of performance and dance. Um, okay, so sorry, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, okay, well, we can talk more about Bausch after, but that should be enough to get us going. Um, so what did you guys think about the about this film? Actually, um, I liked it a lot. Um, I actually saw this film first. Um, apologize if I'm spending too much time telling you how and where I watch these films. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a weird cinephilic tick. But um, uh, this is also a chance for me to, to plug a wonderful little uh, historic organization in my uh, city here, Buffalo, New York. It's a place called Squeaky Wheel. Uh, it's an experimental avant-garde space, uh, long long known with a for a history of... Um, experimental cinema, queer cinema, etc. And so that's where I first watched um, uh, Akram Sardar, who is the curator here, programmed it. And I still kind of, um, I, I remember uh, that, that, that there are two voices on this uh, soundtrack. There are like two voiceovers. There's this, there's this French guy who says something introductory. And um, I almost laughed when I heard his introductory voiceover because, I'll, I'll tell you why, because it was so like spot on to Ackerman's own, um, you know, proclivities. Like he says, he says something like um, Bausch's work involves, um, then he says, fastidious staging, stereotypical gestures, repetitive movements. And they're like little films to which she adds dance. And this is just, you know, you could encapsulate Ackerman's work, or this is a description that you could apply to, to a lot of Ackerman's films. Um, so it seemed like a perfect fit between um, subject and, you know, filmmaker. So that's how it starts. And then, of course, Ackerman comes on later and adds her voiceover. So to me, this uh, set the stage to appreciate the film. Um, this little description of Bausch's work, because I don't know anything about dance and almost n nothing about Bausch, uh, Bausch, this really kind of gave me the right entry point into the film. I really liked this as well. Um, this was the only one of the of the program I hadn't seen prior to getting ready for this podcast. I really love the way that she films the act. The, the I mean, ha roughly half, I guess I'd say of the of this film is spent watching actual performances uh, by the company, and she films these in a very specific way. It's just with with a spectator's eye, I think is maybe one way to put it, where we're generally following one figure at a time or if there is clearly a, if the piece clearly has a central character really just staying with that character um, as a spectator would probably, um, which I think is a really uh, maybe a simple, but very effective way to access sort of the emotional register that she talks about. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, oh man, there's so much to say here. I don't even know where to start. Uh, so I, I think I had seen this film. Hmm. I know I, I tracked it down to watch it when I wrote the piece about Ackerman for CinemaScope, but I genuinely can't remember if I had seen it before that or not. Um, I think not. I think I had just seen it for that. And I remember being really blown away by it. I really love this film. I think it is 
one of my favorites. I mean, I have so many Ackerman's favorites, but the, I really love this film. And um, I, and some of it is that I have a long standing like interest in and fascination with dance. And Bausch's work is, ah, it's so interesting. And I'm certainly not the first person to make this argument, but I personally think that Ackerman's film, hmm, that it, it works in tandem with Bausch's interests in such a way that it really, it really brings out the kind of, aesthetic project in a way that for my money is much more interesting than the vendors film. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, we don't have to talk too much about the vendors film, but it's just an interesting as a comparison because the vendors film is so much more about showing the dance pieces and the way that you would expect a piece of like video documentation of dance to show something. You often can see the entire stage. You often can see all of the dancers. Um, even and then sometimes the, the, the thing with the vendors film is that he'll transport the dancers like out of a dance space into the world and they're sort of dancing on a mountaintop or whatever. But, um, but you still get a sense of like the dance space as a whole and some I can't remember. Maybe you do see things all the way through, but not really. It tends to they tend to be kind of like cut up in such a way that you to create the kind of rhythm for the film. And uh, Richard Brody, when uh, the Vendors film came out, wrote a very like stinging critique of the Vendors film and compared it to the Ackerman film. And the Ackerman film comes out very much on top, <laughs> according to him. You know, this is the Vendors film is a kind of European cultural product, uh, this sort of sumptuous, sumptuous packaging of great artworks that elides their fury to make them venerable. And that is 100% true. If you go to the Vendors film, Pina Bausch seems like a dancer who makes kind of like, I don't know, films, that these sort of dance sequences that are... I don't know, maybe sometimes there's some emotion in them, but by and large, they're kind of pleasant to watch. They're like enjoyable to watch. Whereas the Ackerman film, you really feel the like rage and the uh, the really deep upsetting quality that is present in a lot of these dances. Um, you know, even if that's something that Ackerman herself says she's only says she only realized later. To me, it's very present. The, the the dances in Ackerman's films are this really sharp combination of kind of beauty and engagement and and seduction, visual seduction mixed with this sort of deep unsettling sense of something is wrong here and the and the and Bausch's work often deals with that through the level of um, gender so this fat these like interactions between men and women which again is another interesting echo with Ackerman's work because despite Ackerman being uh, a, a queer individual she often really was much more interested in depicting uh, male-female relations and uh, Bausch's work that is a very like key kind of fulcrum for these sort of like upsetting or difficult things that are happening um i don't know like i'll just the one the one sequence that i always remember from ackerman's film and i feel like it is i maybe it is in the vendor's film i really don't remember and i can't re i think the dance is called contact off i think is the one where you see the woman um in her kind of like nightgown and there's a whole group of men around her and they're just repeatedly touching her like nose her cheek her chest her head her and all of the, her the hands are on her all the time nothing that's happening in that is particularly like in a, like horrible. It's not like there's some sexual assault thing happening actively in that moment, but it calls up such connotations of physical assault of like inability to speak on one's own behalf, this sort of like subjection to kind of horrible outside forces. It is such an uncomfortable dance. And Ackerman just lets it play out in entirety in close up almost on the woman's face. And you see the emotion on her face in this really extreme way. Um, okay. I have more to say, but I'll let you go, go someone else. <laughs> that, that, that was also my favorite, uh, but it, it was just um, just blew me away. Um, 
I, what's also striking about that sequence, um, maybe it's a single shot. I don't remember if it's if there are any cuts within that shot, but is also that it, it begins in a certain way. Uh, these men kind of uh, pinching her cheeks, etc., cetera, uh, mussing her hair. And it seems infantilizing to start with and annoying, but not, you know, malevolent. Uh, but then as it goes on, the expression on her face changes and it kind of crumples her face. And then you realize this is now, has now, in the territory of a full-blown assault and it just keeps happening and the men are in suits and they keep circling her, which, which is also another uh, strange and disturbing kind of aspect of this. The choreography of this is they're not fixed. She's fixed, but they're moving around her, taking each other's places, multiple men focusing their attention at the same time on this one woman uh, who clearly doesn't want to be touched. And so, yeah, that was such a, such a moving scene. Yeah, um, it is. It is really. I mean, I haven't rewatched the uh, the vendors film, but thinking back to my experience of watching it, I definitely don't recall anything nearly as weighty as that in it. I definitely. I'm to be honest, Kate. I mostly remember big screen 3D goper. Basically, it was just it was yes. so aesthetically pleasing to look at that like there was really no other consideration. Uh, at least when I was watching it. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. This is the thing is like the vendors film is fascinating in, in, in it being part of that brief moment where everybody was making kind of like 3d art films, like Herzog made the cave of wonders in that same moment. And this idea of it creating a sort of like new palette for kind of art cinema filmmakers to work on. And so, you know, I, that film has definitely its own benefits. Um, and, and Pina was involved with both. Pina passed away right before the vendors film was set to start shooting or right before it was completed. I, I don't remember off the top of my head but um yeah she died quite young actually it was really upsetting she i believe she received a cancer diagnosis and died five days later it was yeah it was like incredibly uh condensed period so uh, yeah it's very sad but um but yeah but I, I just think that like the ackerman film is just so much more on the same on on a similar wavelength with Pina. like i think they just the, the artistic practices here share so much and i think that ackerman um even just the way we're describing this scenario this dance piece uh, contact off Ackerman, I don't know, her filmmaking manages to kind of make it feel as what Gersh implied earlier with the voiceover manages to make it feel that Pina's film, Pina's dances are very much of a piece with film as a medium. Like they're just waiting to be filmed because I do think that, you know, many of these things, you would be able to see this kind of material of people sort of emoting on their faces in the theater, but it just feels like these are how to say it, that they have an affinity with film, that they're just waiting to be filmed, that it doesn't feel like you're watching a kind of lesser than version of the performances because they've been filmed. They feel very kind of connected in Ackerman's work. And um, something we haven't said here, but I think I say it in the Cinemascope piece, is that you know, Ackerman doesn't only show the dance scenes. There's many other things that are going on here. And what one of the things that's interesting about that is that Ackerman almost never shows Pina. I think we see Pina in the first shot of the film when you hear this voiceover being given by someone else. And the voiceover is quite, as, as Gary says, it's quite like situating. It gives you the sort of information and placing that you might not actually expect from an Ackerman film. Like it's actually a bit unusual for her because then as soon as that's over, we really depart into other, you don't know where we are there's no kind of like 
location or temporal information that's given to you. We're just sort of in different spaces and a performance is happening or something else is happening. And Pina disappears from the film, even though it is arguably, it is supposed to be a film about her. And of course it is, but we only ever get to that from the work that she does, from the productions that she's created and the rehearsals that she sets up, not from seeing her interact with the artists or giving them feedback or directions or anything. Um, okay, so there's that part I was going to say. And then the other things that we see in the film include, there are a series of uh, kind of frontally shot interviews with different dancers that happen throughout where, and this is where the title comes from, where the dancers will say things like, one day Pina asked me to tell a story about X, Y, and Z, and then they tell the story. And then the point of these interviews is often to give you the sense of how the productions happen. And it's the fact that Pina will work with the dancers, and I guess musicians as well, I'm not actually sure about that, with the dancers for them all to kind of collectively um, find aspects of their own life, their own memory, their histories, their emotions, and produce something together out of that. So all of these dances that they do are sort of I mean, collectively created, but also created by Pina with these people's contributions. It's, that's a, another question. But um, so you see interviews with these dancers and these are like, they're fascinating. I love these interviews, but so we should talk about those. And then the last thing I'll say are the other scenes that you see are often shots of the um, kind of back hallways and the, the uh, spaces that open on to the performance spaces so that you see the dancers, for example, in the kind of last third of the film particularly, you see the dancers in the back hallway going through these sort of motions of changing their costumes quickly, fixing their makeup, drinking water. Some of them are smoking or spending time together in the back. But what it ends up doing, and this is what I love about Ackerman's take on this, is it ends up, Ackerman ends up finding very clear links between Bausch's choreographic practices, where, where you take kind of normal everyday movements and turn them into this sort of dramatic fiction on stage. But they're not like trained or specialized movements. Ackerman links that then to these movements that are happening backstage where the dancers are going through these like kind of um, collective choreographies of, of putting on makeup and changing each other's clothes and moving through these spaces so they don't knock into each other. It's like revealing that this sort of choreography is kind of everywhere and like breaking down this line between a presented fiction and an accidental fiction. Another benefit of um, of Ackerman's approach is, and I think this is maybe best shown with the um, with the performer who who uh, who performs some uh, presumably French sign language, um, for uh, which we see we see him do backstage and get some information about, and then we see it's a really cool way of of sort of incidentally showing off Pina's style in that we see the same thing happen in. You know, in the initial shot, it's really, you know, it's just one take of the dude standing still and doing it, which we you know, fairly simple choreography. But just seeing him do it again in a new outfit with different blank staging is like totally different, which is magical. Yeah, it's the it's the song, The Man I Love, the Gershwin song. And I'll just do a quick shout out to Aaron Anoda, who was our guest uh, earlier on this podcast. It's that scene that I saw Erin give a really incredible paper about at the Canadian Film Studies Conference last year. And I was like, we need to get her on the podcast. And I'm I sort of embarrassed to admit, I can't remember exactly the argument she was making now, but she was making this like really beautiful argument about sort of like queer aesthetics and, and loneliness and like, oh my God, it was so good. Hopefully she publishes it so we can all read it. But um, but Girish, what were you going to say? Um, no, that's great. Uh, the, the, the man I love, uh, um, the two, two, two sequences were excellent. Um, 
and I'd love to read that paper too when it's when it, when it's done because it's it's, uh, it's still in my mind the the scenes. Um, I just wanted to add, uh, Kate. Thank you for telling us about the history of dance because I, I didn't know anything about it. And now a scene that I noticed in Pina starts to make more sense, which is the scene. I think it's from a work called Carnations. I think is the name of the work where uh, there's a male um, member of the troupe uh, or a male presenting member of the troupe uh, who is in a backless evening gown. And who starts to like do all these moves from the movements from the what looked like the classical ballet repertoire to me, to my untrained eyes, and then uh, does them uh, one after another and then says, okay, do you want to see more? You want, me, you want to see me do this one or that one? And it's, it's said in a kind of slightly sarcastic, slightly sardonic way as if it's, he's kind of sending up the... Um, the expectation of the audience that the ballet uh, dancers be properly classically trained. And it's like, okay, so you, do you want me to show, show you my degrees? You know, it's like pulling out your credentials and showing them to the audience. So that was a, uh, seemed like a real meta commentary on the evolution of dance, history of dance. And so after you talked about the history of dance, the scene made more sense to me. And it was in retrospectively, it's, it's an excellent scene. And the, and the exhaustion you see, him him i mean just the sheer physical exertion of it is is impossible not to be entranced by yeah no absolutely um i mean that dancer is incredible too that that male dancer and he's i i think he actually is also in the vendors film i can't remember but uh he's been with the troupe for a long time i believe and yeah that sequence is incredible i mean by the end he's basically yelling at the audience like do you want to see another jeté fine i'll do another jeté like dancing across the stage um and then it actually a really abrupt I actually, I don't think I noticed this before, but watching it this time, after he goes through all of that and he's yelling at all the other dancers to take the chairs away that are, around, are on the, the stage, he's confronted by another person who comes up to him in uniform and demands to see his passport. And I feel like it's this kind of stuff that runs throughout it, right? It's the sense of like a moving between these ideas of kind of play and performance, but then crash landing people back into the sense of like real historical specificity and like this sort of real historical kind of discomfort and horror running underneath things. Um, but what I was going to say about the, that sequence too, I meant to bring it up as well because it, and I forget who this is. Oh, so um, a critic writing in that auto portrait book, uh, Stéphane Bouquet talks about that scene too. And I thought he made an interesting point about it, which is that it, yes, it highlights the kind of more traditional dance forms as having to do with sort of mastery and training and the idea of audience expectation around that, which works really interestingly in contrast with Pina's dance forms, which Ackerman really, I think, again, in this sort of like linking between the two of them really understands them as being about um, difference and repetition, right? The idea that like, and, and Bausch has said this herself, that, that so many of her dances take the same set of kind of often very small or like not very dramatic movements and just has the dancers repeat them over and over and over again throughout with the idea being that as you see something repeated this much, you can't help but see those repetitions as actually different from each other, that like the repetition fades into the difference. Um, and so, you know, it's a kind of training of the audience. And Ackerman, of course, is very invested in that project too, right? I mean, something like Tutu Nui is very much linked into this idea of sort of repetitions that cannot actually be repetitions, but we still need to call them repetitions. <laughs> um, yeah. I have, was there anything else I wanted to say here? Does anybody else want to jump back in before if I see all others? I think, I think I've actually covered a lot of what I wanted to say. Let me see. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, I'm overall just, I'm so impressed with the film in the sense of like, you know, it's, it's only an hour long or even a hair under an hour long. And I feel like 
even just as a commercial project of a commission to be like sum up the work of this really complex figure in an hour um i think she finds a really amazing way to do that while also still finding room for you know in, inserting a little bit of her own perspective although not like a, not by no means uh, a, you know she doesn't take over the film for yeah. long lengths of time or anything but she is present certainly well, I mean, there's something to that, though, Simon. I think it's, as you say, it's not exactly about inserting Ackerman's perspective, but it's maybe about highlighting the fact that that the film is is a perspective on the film in the sense that, or, sorry, a perspective on the dance performances in the sense that, you know, the first uh, actual shot of the film, not this opening shot of Pino with the voiceover, but the first actual shot of the film is a um, mostly a black space except for a single lit door that you see in the bottom left hand of the frame and you see the dancers kind of running in front of it and so you just see them as silhouettes in front of this door and it's like the film is sort of announcing to you you are not going to get a kind of quote-unquote objective view on this dance form we're not going to pretend to give you that we're going to give you this kind of subjective um limited but maybe that much more productive for being limited uh view on these dances and of course that culminates in as i mentioned before ackerman inserting herself into the film sitting on a floor uh, in some hotel somewhere talking to someone and just sort of saying how much these how much these dances affected her like how much emotionally um how emotionally impacted she was by coming to find uh, pina's material and, and the film is really about this it's about like kind of opening this sort of emotional space for you. I don't think it, it certainly doesn't purport to give you everything about Pina or to tell you all about this. It's sort of like a door that's opening to you to invite you to go further along in it. One more thing I meant to mention too, to just to add to this sense of the film not giving you the kind of standard or overarching view on Pina's work. The film also doesn't show um, either of uh, Bausch's two best known works, which are the, which is the Rites of Spring is one, and then Cafe Mueller is the other. And those are sort of Bausch's two best known dance pieces. And I think they're both in the um, Vendors film and neither of them are here, which may have just been kind of the vagary of like the performances they were doing at the time. I'm not sure. But it's, again, it's interesting that there are certain kind of key aspects of Bausch's work that are left out. Um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, there's so much here that just isn't said. Like there's so much about this film is about kind of communication at the, at the kind of bodily and effective level and not at the verbal, verbal level. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and that's as good a prompt as we're probably going to get to stop talking about this film <laughs> and, uh, and get to the, uh, the, the, the big one, the, the one that Ackerman spent a whole lot of time and probably stressed out a lot to get made and uh, that's Golden 80s, a.k.a. Window Shopping, as it was released in America. Apparently, Les Années 80s, if I, re if I read this right, Kate, was in fact released as Golden 80s in America. Yes, I actually think that's, now that you say that, that is correct. Simon, yeah, I which remember that. definitely doubles down on the, confu on the confusion. Uh, so Window Shopping, that's supposedly what, what I read was that this was the reason they came up with Window Shopping as an American title. Personally, I think Window Shopping is a great title. And they should have used it everywhere. But what do I know? I'm not Chantal Ackerman. <laughs>
Anyway, so this is uh, Ackerman's full-blown musical. Uh, her her lavish, as close as she's going to get to uh, to a lavish musical production, and certainly lavish by her standards. We've got dozens of actors, and um, you know, a, a full a full set. We've got um, Delphine Serig is here, and many 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 uh, appealing young actors just filling the screen, and so much music and. Kate, how did she pull this off? Uh, with great difficulty. <laughs> it was not uh, not an easy time for her. Um, so yeah, as we'd already said, she'd been trying to raise money uh, when she was when she made the original film. She had been trying in some form, as we've already said on previous podcasts, to raise money for a great big feature for years, like since the late 70s, effectively early 80s, and it had never really worked out. She did manage to get money for the musical from uh, producing the 80s, but it was, as far as I can tell, it was not the amount of money she wanted. So she was always working with a little bit less money than she thought she would get. And uh, as she continued to make films through like 83, 84 uh, in preparation for this larger project, she uh, very sadly had her first major psychological breakdown when she was 34. Um, and this was 1984. And I believe it's a, after this sort of run of films that she made in 84. So there's a whole bunch that she uh, she made there, which you already mentioned, Simon. Um, Family Business, J'ai Femme, J'ai Foi, Lettre d'un Cineaste, and maybe others. And um, yeah, she, as she says in her words, uh, I had my first manic episode at 34. My life changed. Something broke down. Something of that energy that filled me when I was younger. Previously, I had a kind of energy in life with moments of depression, of course, but I read constantly, took notes, was curious about everything, and then it was gone. The breakdown knocked me out. Now I want the days to end early. I go to bed at 5 p.m. at 8 p.m. with sleeping pills without complaining. That's how it is. I cope with my illness, and it's it's an illness like any other. Um, and so, yeah, this idea of kind of Ackerman entering a period of her life where she struggled more overtly with, uh, with large-scale depression, and that becomes an issue in different levels throughout her life after this. But um, she took quite a lot of time off, I think right before in the, in the run up to golden eighties um, because of this. So she was producing less in that period, which as I said before, Simon makes it even more impressive. She made so many films before and after, or maybe that was part of what led her to this. I don't know, but she, um, but yes, yeah, so she was having a very hard time personally. And then I think as far as she has said, she just never really had the kind of full money and support that she wanted to be able to, make this film but as you say Simon it was still you know it, they still pulled it off they still made this this sort of very large-scale musical uh and then I think the last major thing I can say about it here is that it was co-written with a number of different people it was co-written with the guy who was credited uh on the 80s Jean Greo, uh Pascal Bonitzer, uh, a woman named Leora Barish and then the last co-writer is named Henry Bean who I promised Simon I would point something out to him. So Simon, do you know who Henry Bean is? No, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> he went on to write Basic Instinct for um, Verhoeven. Oh, damn. Well then. <laughs> there you go. I promised Simon a Verhoeven Ackerman. Any relation to Sean Bean? <laughs> I have no weird. idea. I don't know about that. Apparently Some he also Bean. wrote for the he also wrote for the OA. So I don't know. Damn. This guy's still, still working now, which is interesting. Huh. But anyway, so... Um, yeah, there it's, it's so. really weird to see five credited screenwriters on a, on a Chantal Ackerman film. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the the writer thing is pretty mind blowing because, um, actually, Kate, um, because I'm a, I'm an erotic thriller nerd, I should yeah. say <laughs> that Henry Bean wrote Basic Instinct two, 
And Basic <gasps> Instinct oh. One was written by Joe Esterhaas, you know, the, the, the guy right, who got like course. millions of bucks to write of for um, Paul Verhoeven. But uh, mm-hmm. Bean also directed, he's also a director. He made uh, The Believer with Ryan Gosling. Right, oh, right, right. Uh, really? Yeah. yeah. Such a weird connection. And he, he wrote this fantastic film that just came out on the Criterion Collection, um, Deep Cover, with Jeff oh. Goldblum, yeah, and, and Lawrence Fishburne. That's on Bill Duke, right? The Bill Duke, the, the Bill Duke film. film, exactly, right? Yeah, so he wrote, huh. he wrote that as well. And something interesting about Leora Barish, the other co-writer, is she wrote Desperately mm-hmm. Seeking Susan. And what? And um, also she meant for Desperately Seeking Susan to be an American version of Rivette's Celine and Julie Go yeah. Boating. Celine and Julie Go Boating, of course, And of course, yeah. Bonnet Serre has a long career, you know, writing for Rivette. Uh, so there's that connection as well. And I think Leora Barish and Henry Bean were partners, romantic partners. Oh. This is what I read somewhere on the interwebs. So, um, yeah, what, what, a, what a state, what a cast of writers here before we even yeah, no begin kidding. talking about the film itself. Yeah. Um, so That's incredible. Everybody should go watch Desperately Seeking Susan immediately. I can't speak for Basic Instinct 2. I've never seen Basic Instinct 2. But it's probably Desperately not wonderful, Susan. but um, I, I shouldn't say that. Who knows? Maybe it's got untold wonders. Um, I, I've been introducing this... I, I haven't watched this movie in full with another person before, but when I am describing it to people, I like to call it Chantal Ackerman's hairspray. <laughs> so I think that gets at 60% of what's going on. Maybe, maybe 55. Cause there's a lot folks. There's a lot going on here. There is a lot going on in this film. Um, I don't know. Does anybody else want to describe it? I can add in things after. Uh, what, I'm, what, I'm, people... I'm happy to take a shot. Although it's sure. such a, um, what makes this daunting uh, to describe this film is that it's, it's truly an ensemble film. There are like eight or nine main characters. We don't focus on any one person ex- exclusively, but I would say um, it's an ensemble film. And it's also in this wonderful category of the mall film. Mm. With, you know, Mall Rats and uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Dawn of the Dead and uh, The Comet. Uh, yes, The Comet, uh, Nocturama. And, oh, Nocturama, yeah. And also True Stories, uh, the David Byrne mm. film, uh, mm. which, which I also love. But, and of and, course, the Chopping Mall series. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's in that distinguished <laughs> tradition. Um, and I would simply, to describe, I, would, I, I might simply say there are like, maybe four key locations. There's a clothing store that's owned by Delphine Sarig and her husband and her son who helps manage. And then there's a little snack bar. Uh, there's a beauty salon and there's a cinema. And these are like the key sites within the mall where the mm-hmm. action action happens. And the action is mostly a bunch of, you know, it's like a bunch of uh, multiple love triangles, like the amorous <laughs> difficulties of these characters. So that would be a short yeah. description of the film. The the tone of the relationships and of most of the relationships in this, in this movie is uh, communicated with the first real shot, which is of a character we don't actually follow uh, making out with these two guys in quick succession as they sit on the same stair, which is very funny. <laughs> yes, the love triangle is going to be the real star of this. Uh, it's the of unit of film. measurement of of these characters. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this, that very much gets at the kind of um, basic structures of the film. It is still, I find this film daunting to describe in terms of its kind of 
stylistic or formal properties though like it is it is a very strange mix as is often the case with Ackerman and watching it this time I actually felt like the comparison that maybe made that popped out to me the most was with what we were just talking about last time, which was um, a coach in New York. I actually feel like there's some interesting crossover here with coach in New York in the sense that this is, this is very much Ackerman both wanting to make a kind of very crowd pleasing, um, you know, a film for a large audience, a kind of spectacular musical comedy style film on the one hand, while still doggedly holding on to her kind of like, I, you know, here it reads as like sort of almost like Marxist economics sensibility or her, um, you know, like modernist sensibility. Like there is this real push and pull between the kind of postmodern uh, spectacle attraction to consumerism on the one hand and this complete sort of critical attitude attempting to kind of get audiences to, to extricate themselves from the expectations of consumerism on the other hand. And it's it creates a very odd... <laughs> mix here sometimes sometimes totally enjoyable and wonderful other times it just feels a little flat and, and I, again I don't think I've said this here but as has been the case with many of Ackerman's big deal or, or sort of big audience films the film was not a success like it wasn't as much of a success as they hoped for I don't think it was as a flop on the same level as something like Coach in New York but it's um because you know this film was released and sort of like as I think Schmidt puts it um uh, Cineplex mall style theaters in like the suburbs of Europe. So, like this, many people saw this film, um, but I don't think it was kind of the same sort of critical or popular success that uh, that she was hoping for. Unfortunately, um, okay, I have lots more to say, but does anybody want to jump in there? Um, I just wanted to say that um, I'm I'm in the minority here, as maybe um, as being the, the person who likes this film the most of the three films. <laughs> <laughs> this is the banger in the in in our lineup for me because um, also my own cinephilia goes back to growing up in India uh, to masala films. Uh, they're incorrectly called um, musicals. They're not really musicals. All of those Hindi films of the seventies and eighties, they they contain music. They they uh, necessarily contain song and dance, but they also contain you know romance and action and melodrama and and other things. And so that's the kind of tradition that I uh, grew up with as a cinephile. And so. I have a special kind of soft spot in my heart for musicals. And because this is a French film, uh, it also connects me to the cinephilic tradition of French films that are musicals inspired by Hollywood films like Jacques Demy's Umbrellas of Cherbourg or Young Girls of Rochefort, which are amazing films, or Alain René's uh, later films like On Connaît la Chanson, which is a fantastic film, uh, Same Old Song, and other films that René has made late in his career, uh, which also draw on the musical kind of idiom and genre. So I think this rich, like intertextual network that this film is part of uh, really gives me a charge when I, when I watch it. So I'm thinking not only of this film, but also all its connections to classic Hollywood and Vincent Minnelli's musicals and, and, you know, a, a host of other things. So, and I find Kate, um, uh, the, the, the way you contrasted like the Marxist economics, uh, part of it and then the attraction to consumerism um i find that uh, for me it's a more convincing blend than than it was for you um because i find that she never the film never truly celebrates consumerism even at the moments where uh, it's most spectacular i still see a little distancing in this film 
And um, this this quality of distance, uh, you know, is, is important in this film because I think Steve Shaviro wrote wrote this about. He, he's written a wonderful he, he article. Has a great essay. He has a wonderful. great essay about this. I was going. I was going to crib a lot of points. Me too. Me too. Because <laughs> uh, I, I love Steve's writing, and I've been a big fan of his work for many many years. And and so and uh, his some of his blog posts, and I think this grew out of a blog post that he wrote. And uh, I think he started his blog around the same time that I started mine, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And I remember reading him on a regular basis uh, when I first started blogging. And he talks about how um, this film, uh, the similarities that it has with Jacques Demy's Young Girls of Rochefort and how they both have this kind of emotional distance and uh, they don't have a lot of depth of feeling. And he he, he says this is a compliment. And I I, I agree with him. And... um, and so much of the affects in this film are very superficial and surface and stereotypical. He says something like, uh, every person who falls in love with this film feels the exact same elation. Every person who feels like betrayed by a lover feels the exact same jealousy. There's no differentiation. It's almost like a, a standard affect of love or jealousy, these signifiers, you know? Um, um, and so it, I, I like that postmodern, superficial aspect of the film. So I never truly find this film to be enthralled to consumerism. It's it's kind of always uh, a little bit at a distance from it. But like you said, um, the best parts are where it's kind of grounded in like a materialism of of, um, uh, of, of economy. So things like uh, there's a recession on, uh, the gas prices are going, fuel prices are going up, rental prices are going up, people are losing their jobs, they can't find new jobs. Um, and Sylvie's lover who's gone to Canada uh, and who sar- sardonically sings this song about how, look at all the wonderful oil wells here, look at all the wonderful asbestos here, you know? So those are clearly meant to be like satirical and funny. Yeah. Wait, you mean you mean Labrador isn't filled with gold mines? <laughs> has to be the only name check of Labrador in any music. <laughs> yes. Shout out to doesn't... Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> doesn't often come up. Um, well, yeah, no, I mean, Garage, I feel like I should correct myself. I feel like I, I probably made it sound a little bit more negative than I meant to there. Because I think what you rightfully remind me of is the fact that maybe what I meant was that the... Um, uh, Couch in New York, I think, is less successful in this mixing. I think Golden 80s is is more successful than Couch in, the, in New York. I don't feel like I love this movie quite as much as you do, though. Unless we can dig into that more. But um, but Simon, did you want to add anything before? Um, I mean, I loved all that. Um, I think the yeah, I I, I love the the insertion of um, I think the most sort of the most arch insertion of these economic elements comes comes near the end when there's a, a, a true the film like a couch in new york which i was definitely going to bring up it has a very classical structure of like inter it's, it's certainly a classic musical or rom-com structure of here's a bunch of characters here are their romantic woes um there is a disastrous climax at which all things converge literally a herd of characters converges to watch happen and uh and then we have a, a denouement where you know we we, we get a, a pleasant enough resolution for most people um, and at that at that climax, we we literally have characters shouting about inflation uh, as as a as a store gets wrecked up. I don't know. It's good stuff. It's very funny. Uh, there's some of the most direct and successful humor of of any Ackerman film is in this one. I think. 
there, there's some quite funny stuff in this. Also, this reminds me, I didn't get to mention the part in the 80s that made me laugh the hardest, which is, I, I think it's like maybe a third or so into the film when they're rehearsing scenes. And you see a couple rehearsing the scene that actually happens at the end of Golden 80s here where, uh, what is her name? Lily, the character who is the sort of like seductress, uh, femme fatale character, and Robert, the son of uh, Jean, played by Delphine Seyrig, and... I'm forgetting the male husband's character's name. He's whatever. Uh, the the parents, the son, Robert, who's like the love interest for apparently every girl in this mall. Uh, Robert and Lily are reunited with the, the drape in the changing room there. But in the golden 80s, or sorry, in the 80s, the original take, you see the two of them rehearsing that. And as Robert like goes into the change room to kiss her, you see this woman run in off camera and stumble and turn around and stare directly back into the camera. I don't know. It makes me laugh so hard every time just to show. And in, in case anybody is watching the eighties and also felt that way <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. So yeah, we have the idea of the kind of economic elements here and the idea of like the affects and stereotypes and yeah, I'll just do my shout out to Shabiro's essay too. I, it's a really great essay. There's a lot in it that I really love and I'll come back to some of the other points he makes below, but, um, but yes, this idea that he sort of draws out about how every, every kind of like emotional exchange here, emotions are already commodified and conventionalized and turned into something that is traded between the characters in the film, rather than this kind of idea in the earlier modernist mode of emotions as these sort of deep interior private things that, that only one can express. And instead here, they are very much kind of part of the conventional language that we all share and that we all live in and are constituted by. And then the, the fact that Ackerman sort of very cannily kind of connects that in a certain sense to this moment in the 1980s with emerging consumerism. Uh, Gears has already pointed out the kind of early recession in the 1980s, which was like a major global recession. At the time, it was considered, I think, the biggest recession since the Second World War. Um, but at the same time, like the early 80s is the kind of rise of, of globalism, the sort of the idea that like... Uh, you know, consumerism, shopping, uh, international finance, all of these things would eventually uh, kind of unite the world. And so you see the sort of tension between these two things here. And Ackerman very much connects the idea of the kind of, um, I don't know, tradability, fungibility of emotion with, uh, with people as commodities, with everything as commodities, right? Everyone is in this mall where Every every scene in the mall, every kind of aspect of the mall has like glass windows where everybody looks at everybody else in the mall. There's this whole kind of like economy of sort of visual surveillance, which turns everyone into a kind of performer for everyone else. But then, and this is maybe why and I agree with Simon about this, that the title window shopping is such a great title, is that it really gets at the sense that you have in the film of everyone kind of shopping for everyone else, like sort of trying to like, you know, buy or own other partners with marriage being the ultimate kind of economic contract, right? And, and the um, marriage is such a sort of parody element in this film. The idea that all the girls talk about is wanting to get married. All everybody does is want to get married. It's either marriage is coming together or breaking up or, um, yeah, anyway, which is, of course, again, a throwback to the sort of early, earlier, uh, particularly MGM musicals, the earlier kind of 1950s Hollywood musicals where sort of heterosexual pairing was such a key um, 
structuring element for those films. But here Ackerman is very much kind of mocking it, especially because, you know, even as Simon says, it's like the ending seems pleasant enough, but nobody ends up with anybody that they want to end up with. Like every single relationship is not the kind of good romantic pairing in the end, or maybe Lily and Robert arguably, but even the father completely deflates that. Yeah. Um, They, uh, the, the, I I think another important uh, detail there is, um, that you not only do you have characters like you said shopping for each other but also you have t- at least two instances of sort of people witnessing uh p- people witnessing couples uh cheating or being cheated on that they're not personally involved with and then that this sort of economy of gossip or whatever that uh, that also arises is uh is is very interesting i'm also reminded of um kate when you were when you mentioned um uh, the fact that everybody's on display, as, as, as both Simon and Kate have mentioned, um, everybody's on display for everybody else. There's a great line in Lisanne 80s where she's giving a direction to an actor and she says something like, um, you, uh, oh no, she says, uh, a customer passes by, give them a commercial smile. So yeah, I think that was very much kind of front and center in her intentions when she, when she made the film. True. Yeah. I mean, it's it really also should be mentioned that like, and this also stands out, I think, in the context of Ackerman films is like the whole cast is just like gorgeous, like very, you know, classically beautiful French people populating the entire film. <laughs> Except the uh, chorus of dork, dorky dudes or whatever. Yeah, chorus of dorky dudes. And also this like funny thing with like the French and like liking kind of older men that yes. I don't understand why they're supposed to be attractive. <laughs> but in French film, they're like, ooh, he's such an attractive older man. I'm like, is he though? <laughs> I don't really understand it. But it's... um. But anyway, uh, but yeah, so there, uh, the character I'm thinking of is Mr. Jean, who is this kind of semi-gangster figure who sort of uh, is connected to this mall and he funds the hair salon that his mistress Lily runs. Uh, Lily is of course Femme Patel sleeping with Robert. This is the everybody's all connected. Um, but yeah, I was just going to bring up here too the fact of how how common it is in the writing of the film, the kind of writing of the scenarios that, that Ackerman and this team of other people have put together where in like a whiplash pace, like from word to word or sentence to sentence, characters will move between talking about love and talking about the economic relation that like connects them or like necessitates their being together. Like, um, you know, Lily and Mr. Lily is only with Mr. John because he pays for the hair salon. Um, you know, Mado, when she's so upset that Robert has left her at the end in her wedding dress, the like second thing she says is I'm going to have to return all the gifts for the wedding. Um, you know, the, and we haven't talked about this yet, but the plot, one of the plots with the, older generation uh the delphine sarah character jean and her husband why can i not who's her husband's name uh, he's, he's actually just called monsieur schwartz he's, he's not given a uh, that's name. it you're right monsieur schwartz and so these are kind of like autobiographical references to um ackerman's parents of course they own this clothing store that they sell and even just the way those stores are set up is like worth talking about this kind of like temple of consumerism wherever there's so little material and everything it's all laid out in this kind of worshipful way but anyway so the plot that you have between the two of them is that um at one point uh jean and of course that's an echo to jean dealman jean is approached by an american man uh in the store 
and it we eventually realized that he had sheltered her uh, after she was liberated from a camp in uh, from a concentration camp in the Second World War. They they had fallen in love, but without declaring it to each other. And right as he was about to declare his love, she decamped to go back to her family, presumably, or her aunts or something. And um, and so he has now found her this many years later, like 30 years later, and very much wants to take Jean away. And I, out of this sort of ideal of romantic love, they're going to run away and have this love they could never have. And while Jean seems to go back and forth about it, and there's a number of scenes with them together, ultimately she turns him down. And even though she doesn't say it this explicitly, the general implication is, is that the life she has is a kind of economically stable life. And as she says, the, the, the love that you're talking about is a love for the young. And in a line that actually kind of breaks my heart, she says, my mind was never young, or I was never young in my mind. And that, I mean, this just, I wanted to get this on the record. We haven't talked about it yet, but that, that whole plot line introduces, apparently I, I haven't gone back and confirmed this, but I'm, I think it's Schmidt who says this is that this film is the first time Ackerman explicitly references the Holocaust in her work, that you have a character actually talking about the camps and it builds to this kind of like incredible sequence at the end where Meadow has just been left by Robert and she's devastated. And um, the Jean character is comforting her. And there's this whole crowd like swaying behind them kind of comedically. Jean is comforting her and her speech that she gives to Meadow, you know, she says, you'll love again, you'll love again. It's okay. But she says something like, uh, as long as we all have food, we'll be okay. Like everything will be okay as long as there's enough to eat. And then she says, and we'll all have to love each other. We all have to be happy. We all have to get happier because if we don't, there will be another horror. And this time no one will make it. And, or this time no one will survive. And the film just sort of goes by that very quickly. And then you're into this other song and the ending where they go outside of the mall, which we should talk about too at the end. But um, anyway, I just wanted, we, I just wanted to hear kind of people's thoughts about that. This idea of this being a very kind of like spectacular musical, but it also being the moment where Ackerman deals with this kind of like brings up this sort of historical horror in the most explicit way yet. Yeah, that, that, that is a striking um, aspect of this film. In fact, when Eli first visits Jean and she recognizes him, I think he talks about how she talks about how uh, she was kind of frail and he took care of her, but never actually expressed um, the fact that he loved her. And it's it's fascinating to me once again to go back to this to my obsession with the fact that the French are obsessed with U.S. Mu- with Hollywood musicals. Um, in uh, Young Girls of Rochefort, which is really one of my favorite musicals, uh, there's a, a character played by Gene Kelly, who kind of who's an important character who comes to town in American. And so Eli is also played by an, a director, John Barry. Uh, who, who was blacklisted and he made films like He Ran All the Way with John Garfield and uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum has written quite a lot about uh, Barry's work and um, encouraged he has encouraged people to kind of check out many of his films which are now on, on DVD. But so that was that was like another connection can, uh, for me between um, other other French musicals uh, inspired by Hollywood and this one. Uh, but but not to take the focus away from uh, um, her her invoking the um, the Holocaust. Um, and one final thing I want to say is, uh, Kate, in, in in line with what you were saying about the commodification of emotions, etc. Uh, at the very end, there's this amazing line that Monsieur Schwartz says. He says, "Love is like a dress; you try it on, and if you don't like it, you can always find another one." Or so- something incredibly um, blunt and. Um, stinging. But again, as you said, it's a line that's spoken and then you go on to the next line. So 
Um, so I thought of these lines after the film ended because I really didn't have time to reflect upon them during the course of the film because this is the rare Ackerman film that does not allow time <laughs> for reflection. And I kind of, I like that it goes against the grain of her usual style is in most Ackerman films, there's like extended takes where you almost have too much time to think um, about what you're watching. And, and, and this film doesn't do that. Yeah, I'm sure that many people uh, may take issue with aspects of the Lily character, but um, I really like. Um, there's a scene that she gets, um, I would say near the n near the end of the period before we get that three month uh, three months later break, where she kind of does get like a little monologue and song, and it contains a line about she's she's extolling the virtues of her older uh, the fellow she's she's been philandering with, uh, Monsieur Jean. And she's she's extolling his virtues, and she and one of these virtues is, includes like the smell of death or whatever. Uh, I I didn't write down the exact line, but there's something really weird and kind of funny in there, and it just goes by in a second. She's like, "You have that wonderful old man smell of death," <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, yeah great." Sure. <laughs> and I don't know that actually helped. Just uh, how earnest she she seems to be in that sequence actually really helped redeem that character for me. You know, th this leads me to something I want to ask both of you about, which is I, um, I'm really intrigued by um, the way she uh, addresses gender in this film. And, 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 and I know that she has long resisted the label of feminist, but I think there's some strong feminist critique in this film in, in, in even a very simple way, like the way um, many of the characters are ge uh, perform gendered behaviors, like the characters who are opportunistic, aggressive and ambitious, who want to expand, etc. They tend to be men. The Monsieur Jean is a gangster who kills people, expand, wants to expand his empire. The only, and, and men are also like cheating and deceitful, etc. cetera. Uh, except you could say Lily is deceitful, but then Lily is also lower on the totem pole than Monsieur Jean, and she has to please Monsieur Jean, otherwise she's going to lose her livelihood mm -hmm. and lose her business. So I think what these people do for a living and the way they act, it, it's not completely neutral. Men and women don't do the exact same things in this film. And uh, and also, you know, we, we talked about how sort of this obsession with marriage is uh, is a sort of a comic holdover from uh from the mgm musicals but there's also sort of the implicit critique of like well these these you know uh these relations have not changed that much like women like many women are still very dependent on their on their male partners and uh, and and might very well have a direct incentive to be thinking about these things um that is you know sort of outside the bounds of of romance uh, and the, the film is very repeated and explicit about that yeah, certainly. I mean, the character who gets married off screen early on, Sophie, I think her name is, who comes back at the end of the film and they all ask her how is marriage and she says, oh, great, but the pay is lousy. <laughs> you know, it's like this, these kinds of uh, links that Ackerman is, uh, is drawing out here. I mean, no, I think the film is, is absolutely engaged in kind of feminist questions. And, you know, it's, it's funny because Ackerman, I think at least once, maybe to Dennis Lim, she said something like, it's not that I don't, it's, I forget how she phrases it, but something, it's not that I don't like the label feminist. Or not that it's, she says, not that the label feminist isn't right. It's that it's not right enough. With the idea being that it it if is necessarily as a label something that forecloses change and development and addition, right? And so it's, I don't think it's that Ackerman ever felt like she couldn't be or wasn't a feminist. It's just that she didn't want to be pigeonholed into a certain idea of what feminism was. And I mean, I don't know. I think that that is very much present here. I think, and this is, again, a point I think Shaviro makes in his essay is that, 
if Lesanea's idea is this idea of kind of women and, and men, but women also being trained into these roles that are meant to make them, you know, attractive, economically stable, uh, you know, financially secure, all of these things. If that's if that film is about them being trained into it, this film is about that as a finished product, that all of the characters here are this kind of um, people who have already been trained into these roles. And I think this is a point, and maybe at this point I can work in this larger idea from Shavira that I wanted to mention that I thought was so great, which has to do with the way in which kind of um, entertainment, mass media ideas about the roles of women, right? That, that the roles of women, the roles of men, but like gendered roles, the ways that those already inflect the kind of conventional ideas that we have about ourselves, right? Which is a very post-structural idea, right? That we're born into a world of conventions, of rules, of grammar, that we have to then kind of create ourselves out of those pre-existing rules that are not historically stable, but that change. Um, but I but I thought Shaviro's point was really great about the film because he talks about it as kind of occupying a middle ground or maintaining a little bit of both the sort of modernist uh, kind of stylistic frame and this postmodernist frame. And um, let me just see if I can scroll down and remind myself of the points I wanted to make here. But um, yeah, the idea that uh, in the kind of modernist, you know, art forms, uh, the sort of period of modernism, so much of modernist art is committed to this idea that you would, how to say it, that there would be a kind of unity of form and, and, um, content that that you are looking for this kind of aesthetic style that will uh, bring together um, the content that you're talking about and the form that you're talking about in this kind of perfect way that will be so sort of perfect that it will ultimately kind of affect the life of the world, right? And this is like a clear example of sort of modernist architecture, the, the international style, right? The idea that you would create a building that is sort of like so clean and pure and correct in its form that it will ultimately have this effect on how human beings live, um, right? This is the modernist idea that, that that art actually will. And it's like, you know, you can see it in kind of like Soviet Russia as well, right? The idea that like radical art forms are necessary to and will affect the way human beings live. Um, and Shavira makes this point that Ackerman sort of finds is very much committed to this kind of attitude, but that she kind of finds it as well in something like the musical, right? Where the musicals, you know, Hollywood musicals or whatever are not committed to radical social change, but they similarly kind of believe in this, um, link between uh, the kind of perfect sort of formed world and the lived world, that they don't see them as separate, that like performance and uh, aesthetics and representation are sort of where life is or where it should be. She recognizes, the, this is Shaviro's line, she recognizes uh, and recapitulates the modernist aesthetic ideal of a unity of form and content in her invocation of the musical here, but her postmodern insight is to recognize that this unity is itself already a construction of the forces of entertainment, fashion, and commerce. So it's like with this film, you see that if there is this kind of link between, um, you know, the modeled form of the world that you might want and actual life, it's not because of some grand modernist art plan that has had this like great utopic effect it's because life is already so influenced and infected by these kind of like ideas 
of mass media, popular art, entertainment that, you know, are not necessarily all bad or something, but that they are ever present. And so this ends up really dictating these ideas that the characters in the film live by, right? And this is part of what Ackerman is activating with the utter lack of like depth in these characters, that these characters are not like there's, I mean, Jean, the character of Jean kind of comes close. There's some sort of implication of like a kind of interiority and historical past there, but so many of the other characters are just sort of interchangeable, like as, as um, Garish referenced earlier, they just feel depthless. They just are kind of trading affects between themselves. There's just sort of a blank space underneath them. And so this is it again. It's like the idea of the convention and the rules and the modes that we might fit into that that's more important ultimately in this film than like individuals or individual characters and what they might do and want. And yet, I don't know for me personally, there are, did, did, did either of you feel like there are still times in the film, despite the like pointed lack of depth, et cetera, that I do feel some of the, the emotionality that we were getting in Les Années 80 still manages to creep in. I mean, really with the, the music doing a very heavy assist um and i think that actually comes across maybe like most most plainly early on with that first sequence of is it sylvie who runs the the uh what looks like an orange julius um she first reads this ridiculous letter and then she sings it and she does much of this looking directly at us which is uh very unnerving i have to say but also quite moving in in in, in a it's one of those scenes that uh, that sort of hops between unnerving and moving and like ridiculous, like sometimes like a few frames at a time. Yeah. And there's a scene later on too where Jean sings to herself in the store. And it's the only time where you hear like a kind of where, where it is actually Delphine Seyrig's voice. And it's a really sort of non-professional sounding voice. And it's like, she's quite, it's quite a nice singer, but she doesn't sing with the same sort of like powerhouse voice. And it's very affecting. It's like very moving. But yeah, maybe Simon, I actually wanted to hear from you a little bit more. What is your sense of the music here? Because I feel like I'm not a, I'm not an expert on music by any stretch. And there are certainly songs in the mix here that I love. Like there are that song that they perform in the, uh, what's it called? The hair salon. I mean, you can never get it out of your head. <laughs> God. The, the, as with many musicals, um, it's not so much about individual songs as there is like, you know, a set of melodic motifs that show up a lot. And they are damnably catchy, I have to say. Like for for someone who really only got one shot at um, at making a, a proper film musical or whatever, um, I think the music is really good for the most part. So there's like some bits here and there that I maybe find a little grating or silly, but uh, I don't know. I love the the mid eighties production is just priceless. Um, I have to say, I, and I, I almost hate to say it. There's something about this like chintzy eighties keyboards, um, especially in that first Sylvie sequence when she's singing this big emotional song over these eighties keyboards and like, you can't quite tell, um, and you know, th these, these, these big, bold emotions in this, in this particular palette, I gotta say almost proto Lynchian. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'll say that it, it, it exists in that weird space with, um, with psycho three, where it's like, it's, which also came out around the same time where it's, it was, where it seems like some of the same primordial ooze is, is slushing around the zeitgeist and getting pulled into these into these forums psycho three basic instinct two i mean who knew <laughs> this is the company that ackerman uh is keeping right. in this period <laughs> um well yeah i was gonna say something about the the music in that sequence where the uh where they're in the um hair salon but uh but Girish, did you want to add anything um i have to say that uh 
just the whole 80s vibe in this film, I find powerfully attractive, alluring. (laughs) And, you know, and we haven't actually talked about them, but um, the costume design in this film is so striking. And I have to say, because I watched this film originally on VHS and there was a pale shadow of what I knew it was, um, and I recently watched the restored version on the Criterion channel, I was just stunned by how vivid the colors are and how they jump out and... um, and all the costumes, like the the plastic raincoats and, um, you know, the, the tight, big belts, the, the, the thick, uh, tight belts, the, the incredible perms of the 80s. I mean, all of these details, um, costume and uh, makeup, uh, uh, form a big part of the charm for me of this film. And there's also a playfulness and humor to this film that we haven't kind of um, yeah, delved into true, as much. Right. Uh, there's a great shot of two mannequins, and then people walk into the frame. But I think that in itself is kind of an could be seen as an, a bit of an in joke because of Ackerman's preoccupation with stillness in so many of her films. And so we begin with two still people. Wait, they're not people, they're actually mannequins. And then people enter the frame. And it also reminded me of Nocturama in which mannequins and mall, the mall plays a big part. So there's a, um, this made me think of a lot of other films uh, in, in the history of cinema in a, in a way that I, as a cinephile, I found very pleasurable. Like for instance, in, uh, in to go back to Jacques Demy one last time, I promise, um, the, the great uh, coffee shop that Yvonne, played by Danielle Derieu, owns, she's the mother of the two twins in uh, Catherine Deneuve being one of the twins. Um, th- that character is a kind of an analog for Sylvie here, who has this snack bar, but the snack bar doesn't have any um, any walls in this film, and in the in the Young Girls of Rushford, the snack bar has walls of glass, so it can be seen like an aquarium from everywhere in the square. So there were so many little touches like that um, that kind of reached out to. Uh, to other films in in film history. Despite uh, the fact that we've already invoked the Holocaust as the film does and many other um, scholarly subjects, uh, we should, we should, you know, make clear to, uh, to listeners who haven't seen the film that it is in fact like extremely fun and funny to watch and like pleasurable. And I also have to like, thank you Girish for mentioning the outfits because they really pop on that restoration. Holy cow. Like this is another dimension in which the film is pleasurable in a totally different way from, I think any Ackerman film we previously talked about. Yeah. And, and not to make like blatant national generalizations, but I do think it's a specific talent of the French to like be able to have all of those eighties hairstyles and still somehow look good 35 years later. I mean, like American and Canadian girls in the eighties, they don't look as good on film. (laughs) Some of these uh, fits and some of these haircuts that people have, I mean, I could still see those in downtown Toronto, honestly, like some of them in Vogue. It's it's what I mean. It's like the, the European eighties were like, I don't know. They they definitely have been kind of reactivated, whereas there, I think there are things about the North American 80s that we all just want to forget. <laughs> but no, I was going to say about the uh, the musical. Yeah, no, I meant to bring up the costumes as well, because the costumes really are phenomenal. And it's funny because we also haven't really talked about this film yet in, in the kind of way that you tend to talk about most musicals, which is the idea of sort of like, you know, how things are staged, right? Like, do, does it involve dance? You know, how does color used in the frame? And I mean, and the Ackerman is doing so many interesting things with this here. Like, again, you often have the really primary colors scheme. Like, it's very kind of like, not garish, but it's very bright colors that are in the frame. Um, and there are, dance does appear here and there, but again, in a kind of very interesting way. And I find it, 
maybe filtered a little bit through her encounter with someone like Bausch, because the dance that often happens, with some exceptions, tends to be dance that is quote unquote ordinary dance, right? Like the final, um, you know, uh, big number, quote unquote number of the film has a, has a woman sort of singing briefly in the foreground and you have couples kind of waltzing around them. And so, yes, of course, that's a bit, that's spectacle, it's fantasy, but it's no, no one is doing kind of like grand choreographed sort of masterful dance moves in this film. The only kind of like more or less choreographed sequence, at least maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the only more or less choreographed scene you get is um, the one that takes place in the hair salon where all of the young women are singing about uh, like Robert and Meadow and everything, right? La, 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 la. Yeah, <laughs> have it in your head forever. I know you're never, you're never going to get rid of it. But um, I mean, those sequences are great. All of the sequences in the hair salon are actually incredible because Ackerman does some really wonderful things with sort of joke highlighting how interchangeable the girls are like there's an early scene at the beginning where Eli comes in and he wants to shave and uh, this like gossip of a man wanting a shave at a woman's uh, place runs through all of the women characters and they all like take places trading off with each other so one will run up to the next one and not only will she take over like the hairdo that the other girl was doing for a client she'll pick up the conversation that the girl was having with the client without missing a beat and this happens regularly throughout um and so then again in the in the final musical number that you have in that space the women are kind of like all of the choreography involves them kind of like semi-torturing the clients <laughs> like rubbing their heads so hard that it looks very painful or like spraying water in their face <laughs> It's quite funny. It picks up the um the sort of everyday gestures that Pina was was putting in her work, but there's none of the um none of the anguish. <laughs> it's all just it's it's all just fun, really. Like it's it's odd to see her pick up those gestures and use them in service of, you know, sort of the more bubblegum aspect of the of the production. You know, there was a question um, I was going to ask uh, the two of you. There's a line that I read, I think it was by Yvonne Margulies, where she said that every time Ackerman uses pop songs in her work, they are usually corny love songs. And or they're like really, really like cliched um, classical themes like Fur Elise and um, Jean Dielman. So I'm wondering, like, why she does that. And I had I had a couple of thoughts on it, too. But I wonder what, what you what you what you made of her of her choices like that. I mean, I don't know. My my basic guess, and my guess is that I'm not the only one who's guessing this, is that it's um is is of a similar kind of register as the way she feels about the way she's drawing out sort of emotion here as something that is already kind of conventionalized, already popularized. I mean, to me, I don't think I think she quite she's quite drawn to like popular music often for this sense that it is it is a way into the popular, it's a way into kind of shared spaces of convention, which is both really enjoyable, but also requires maybe a reckoning with this fact of a kind of mechanization of our own tastes and our own sensations, right? So it's, it's you know, there's a problem there, but there's also real enjoyment there. I mean, I think this is, that's her, is that sort of what you were yeah, thinking, Yeah, that, that, that makes uh, total sense to me. And also, I, I like that these, uh, like, love songs, pop songs, they do get recontextualized in her work, because you know, her impulse, maybe not in this film as much, but her impulse is often avant-garde experimental. So in Les Années 80s, for instance, the songs uh, become a bit defamiliarized and I listen to them a little bit differently because they're in that context. So th th their effect is different for me in, in her films than it is if I were just listening to the radio. 
one of my favorite bits of use of music in this film. It's pretty quick, but um, there's or maybe it's not that quick. There's a key scene between Delphine Serig and um, the American love interest, which takes place in like the vestibule before entering a cinema or whatever. And the music in it is implied comes from the film that's screening. And the and you immediately notice that the scoring is in a totally different register from the rest of the movie. It's like super lush and melodramatic and it's like really striking and it and it's uh and it's of course used to score their entire very you know dramatic and sad and romantic conversation and uh it's much like she i think she does with the pop song she kind of like borrows a bit of the major uh in service of the minor perhaps um you know if we want to go all the way back to the talk of ackerman and minor cinema i think uh, it's a it's a really effective strategy no, that's a great point, Simon. I had I hadn't forgotten about the sort of minor, but that makes total sense. This idea of like the minor language, the minor literature is necessarily using the language of the major, but then deforming it in order to kind of say something within the major language, right? So that's that would be it, right? It's like I think why, you know, I mean, like Ackerman likes like modernist music. Like I've heard her talk about kind of Schoenberg and stuff, but she doesn't, or um, uh, Philip Glass. Like she only likes the early Philip Glass. She doesn't like the later. <laughs> <Philip Glass. laughs> but, uh, but um you know she this idea that like for her it maybe matters more to be able to find the kind of strangeness or the the outre or the the minor position that is that is there in the kind of popular conventional um material yeah i'm also just it kind of cracks me up to think of um jean dielman if it had had like i don't know Carl Heinz Stockhausen over it instead. It would just be like too much, too much. Just what too, too many layers of, of distance or whatever. Well, okay. I think I had maybe like two more quick things to say, but uh, I'll just say the first one, which was that I just wanted to get this on the record because I loved it watching this film now. Although wait, oh my God, this is a problem with my brain using the timeline. Like the fact that we're going out of chronological order here. What year is young girl at the end of the 1960s? 91, uh, I want to say. Film? Oh my god, it's 91. It's after this film because there is 94, a girl sorry. who shows up in it. There's a girl who shows up in this film that is like uncannily linked to the lead from um Young Girl. Mm-hmm. I, do you guys remember what I'm talking yes. about? There's this young woman who's dragged into the store by her mother and she's wearing the exact outfit. <laughs> And uh, in, in a young girl is wearing like the striped sweater and the jeans, and her mom is like desperately trying to get her into a dress, and the girl is refusing, like screaming in the background during this romantic interchange, which is quite funny. Um, but anyway, so I, it still makes sense, of course, because Ackerman in both of those instances then is like it's like an autobiographical nod to herself. Um, but I just love that. That's like, a very cute link. I would have never never noticed. Yeah. <laughs> And it also goes back to what Gersh was talking about, the sort of implicit kind of feminist concern, the like little edge that Ackerman always gets in there. There's a woman who says earlier to Robert, maybe she's like, Robert's like, well, I'm a man and I like it and you should dress to please a man. And she's like, what if I don't want to dress to please a man and storms out of the room? <laughs> I love that. Um, okay. Well, then the last thing I'll say maybe, and then if, if everybody else wants to say their last things too, I was just going to point out that I hadn't had a chance to reference this yet because Gersh was saying so many great things about Jacques Demy that I uh, didn't add my piece in, but I wanted to reference as well um, the links, particularly with Umbrellas of Cherbourg, because I think it, it I think it's fascinating. I mean, again, the film is so it's like um, Young Girls of Rochefort. The references to Umbrellas of Cherbourg are so 
clear and implicit in this film or explicit in the film, like the opening credits of all of the feet walking across the concrete in the mall is like a reference to the umbrellas seen from above and umbrellas of Cherbourg. And of course, um, we haven't talked about this so much here either, but the, um, the lyrical style of the music in the film is, is sort of this idea of kind of like everyday language just written into musical form, which of course references Michelle Legrand's incredible work for the Demi films. Um, so there's a lot of cross a crossover here and, and also the split between the kind of older generation uh, really focused on the sort of like economic end of love and the younger generation buying into sort of ideals of romantic love very much describes Umbrellas of Cherbourg too. But, um, but what's fascinating in both of these films, I think, is that in something like uh, Golden 80s, you get these references to a kind of American cultural presence in the mall with the things like all of the film posters in the mall being American films, right? And to me, this is a clear reference to what you get at the end of uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, where there is this sort of uh, romantic love that's been kind of devastated at the end. And it all takes place at a gas station in winter in front of this brand new shell sign, right? The idea of a kind of like cultural and economic imperialism being tied together. Um, the idea of sort of Europe being radically remade by the sort of the, the, the appearance of sort of globalism. Um, but I also just wanted to point out that I think Ackerman is very much aware of this in the early 80s, which is quite really this idea that she continues to not only tie like consumerism to um to love and to romance but consumerism to imperialism and as Girish as you pointed out earlier it's so present in these male characters particularly making these speeches about you know for capitalism to make money you need to have space you need to take over you need to win you need to like spread over the globe I mean it, it really like prefigures the kind of replacement with like armed the replacement of armed global conflict with um you know financial takeover and like globalist expansion and which of course now we're seeing waver break down a little bit with the Russia Ukraine scenario. But anyway, it's it's just fascinating. I feel like Ackerman maybe not given enough credit is like a thinker of globalism, but it's definitely there. <laughs> the the last thing I wanted to say was actually thank you for bringing up the posters, Kate, because let's just quickly review the films uh on exhibition at this mall, which includes the Batman feature starring Adam West, uh the incredible Gun Crazy, which I hope at least one of you That's has an seen. Incredible Holy yeah. crap. Everyone, if you haven't seen Gun Crazy yet, pause this podcast and go watch Gun Crazy. That movie fucking whips. And something called Green Ice, which I gather is some sort of some sort of sci-fi movie starring Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill and Uma Sharif star in your Saturday movie at 8.30. Two men caught in the iron grip of a sinister addiction. The most daring robbery ever planned for Green Ice. Saturday action, 8.30 on ITV. Was it real? I assume that real. was a It's a real film. movie. It's I swear <laughs> to God, it's real. You can watch it. Well, good. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just a fascinating. I just I, I mostly wanted to know if anyone had seen Green Ice because it looks amazing. I had never heard of it actually. Um, and Gun Crazy, I was very happy to see um, uh, the, the poster for that. Um, I just I just wanted to add something to what Kate just said, which is um, the way she, the way Ackerman was uh, kind of invoking global. Uh, uh, American imperialism, global capitalism, et cetera. There's um, another thing that she does here, which is there's a little lament in the film, in the mall, 
for uh, the dying of these small stores, like these family-owned stores, yes, exactly. et cetera. And, and, you know, that's another way, Kate, in which she's like looking ahead to how large corporate retail chains would replace small stores. Malls did have a lot of small family-owned stores back in the day. And, and so she's kind of looking ahead to that. And that, that's kind of what we're seeing today is we walk into a mall, the few of them that do exist these days, uh, they have mostly large, you know, um, huge conglomerate-owned uh, retail stores. It's notable that uh, w- one of the other things that kind of doesn't go according to standard plot, I guess, in one of these things is that, you know, the the arch capitalist schemer who is so often like a part of these stories wins here because he actually does get the extended storefront that he wanted. He gets absolutely everything that he that he that he set out to do through the through the nefarious uh, means that he intended. Yeah, and then of course is faced with this sort of uh, recession. There's no customers in the mall at the end, and they go outside. And I find the ending of this film to be so strange when they walk outside and they it's it's Meadow and uh, Mr. Swords and uh, Jean. And they run briefly into Eli and his new young wife. And, but they're sort of standing on the sidewalk and kind of life is happening around them or in the background. And Mr. Schwartz gives his bizarre speech about, you know, love, it's okay. You'll just find a new love slash outfit tomorrow. And, you know, people have to have love the same way they have to have clothes. Otherwise, we would be out of business. And then the film, like, cuts dramatically at the end. So I love it. Um, it's like all that matters is business. But I don't, it's just such a funny move when they go outside because you – you know, musicals, of course, traditionally end on some grand, big musical number. And there is a bit of a musical number here toward prior to this. But then they go inside and it ends on this really kind of like, not exactly deflationist note, but it ends on a really kind of anticlimactic space or something at the end, which I love. It's it, it's like the going outside. It's it's maybe equivalent to the kind of revelation of labor in the earlier film. This fact of like, this is a set. This has all been constructed. Go outside into the real world. But it doesn't come with this kind of force of the real or force of a kind of like... Um, I don't know, revelation of world of the of a world behind consumerism the way you might think it would. It, it almost just echoes again with the inability to escape the mall, even though they're outside. Yeah. Well, and it, and it also weirdly kind of rhymes with uh, the ending of several other Ackerman films, where she she kind of has a, a t- not a, not a tendency because that would imply it's always there, but like something she a move she pulls fairly often is like sort of ending on an exhalation in a way, and like getting out of the mall finally is kind of akin to the end of. News from Home, or even the end of uh, Les Années eighty with that three sixty spin, um, but or I guess as far out as you can get without totally breaking the movie in half or whatever. Yeah, there's also like um, so many of her films are like so carefully thought through conceptually. There's like a system uh, that she's thought through, and uh, she she designs you know various um, movements or um, variations within the system, and then uh, to to like break the system or to like leave the system uh, here the mall and the cinema are actually both these i'm not sure who said this maybe schmidt says it somewhere in her writings on ackerman that um there's an analogy between the mall and the cinema they're both like highly controlled aestheticized systems and and within which like cinephiles you know experience for a few hours they have a certain experience and then in a weird way at the end there i think she's pointing to the enclosed, hermetic, aestheticized environments in which film lovers spend their time or like mall goers spend their time by like, basically it's a small gesture to step outside it. But in a weird way, it's just to show that that was a closed system. She needs to like get out of the system for for a few minutes. So that's kind of how it struck me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Shaviro says something similar, right? The idea about like what happens, that what Ackerman is attempting to draw out here is the fact that this, again, this blurred line between kind of cinema and reality, because every, every performance, everything everyone does in the mall is as aestheticized, as controlled, as performed as anything you would see in a film. And so it's this sort of link. And like, even so, even as they step outside, that doesn't dissipate, even as you're right, Girish, I think you get this kind of um, comparative space to at least differentiate between the space of the mall. Um, yeah. For and sure. you're right. It, it, it's, it's not um, Schmidt, but Steve Shaviro who says, who yeah. says that you're right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I know we're probably already over time by a little bit. I just wanted to give yours one more chance to add, to add anything he wanted to add about kind of getting to see uh, Ackerman in interview or talking about her in interview. Cause I know we said we maybe would come back to that, but, uh, but Simon, was there anything else you wanted to say before we. No, I, I, I think I'm good. Go watch golden ladies. It's one of the most accessible. And I mean that in every sense, uh, Ackerman films right now, the restoration is kicking around. It's on the criterion channel right now as we record this will it still be in 20 years when you listen when you're listening now and whatever godless year it is who knows but right now it's there <laughs> um but yeah so Gary, i feel like i've read a lot of interviews with ackerman but i and seen maybe sort of short video things of her in interview and we have an episode maybe down the road that's going to deal more specifically with us this idea of ackerman on camera talking about her own films but um but yeah i don't know i just wanted to hear any thoughts you might have about that i, I will only say that uh, i've seen ackerman on a few occasions speak and it's all always been at the Toronto International Film Festival, which uh, I've gone to for most of the last 20 years or so, because uh, it's so close to where I live. And um, the few times that I've seen her, I found her to be uh, like a really interesting person uh, to be interviewed after a film because she uh, she doesn't do the normal, polite thing of, you know, thanking people uh, to come to their film. And, you know, she, she doesn't... Um, in, She's not a person of platitudes in, at, at those Q&As, and she really wants to have a conversation about genuine things in the world. And sometimes she'll just say unpopular things or things that people might not like to hear, or provocative things sometimes. And I've seen her do that at every single one of these Q&As. It never comes across as gratuitous. It always com comes across as sincere and searching and kind of inquiring. And I still remember uh, her... Um, at the Q&A for Tomorrow We Move. I'm not sure that's one of the films uh, that you've already talked about on the podcast. No, it's coming up still. We haven't talked about it And yet, uh, yeah. there's something about that film, also a very musical film, uh, I think, even though it doesn't have a lot of music in it. Um, but after that film, uh, which, which played in 2004 at the Toronto International Film Festival, and Godard's Notre Musique also played at the same festival and was getting a lot of notice and reviews and so on. And I remember her kind of calling out Godard for anti-Semitism in that, in that movie. Um, and I, I can't remember exactly what she said because it was almost 20 years ago. But I remember, you know, being very, I had just seen Notre Musique, I think the, the day before, and I, I was at the sacrament screening. And I remember her, you know, being very persuasive in laying out why that film could be seen as um, insensitive and, and, and anti-Semitic. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've really enjoyed um, her Q&As. Um, I think La Captive was another one. And maybe there was, an, uh, there was a third film where I saw her interviewed, but um, it was uh, some of the highlights of my trip to TIFF have been hearing Ackerman. Yes. Yeah. She certainly doesn't want to uh, do what is expected or, or the kind of, yeah, as you say, the very polite thing in those Q and A's from what I have seen of it. Um, oh yeah. There's so much more to say. I realized too, I kind of introduced that material about her having the, um, 
the kind of psychological break that she had early on and that we didn't come back to that. But I, I feel like it's something worth thinking about a little bit more about maybe whether, and I'll just put this out here now for us to come back to in future podcasts, but is, um, yeah, these questions about sort of like her, her, her mental health that she had much harder struggles with later in her life, how that kind of framed or affected her relationship with film and, and aesthetic production. And well, I don't know, again, I don't, we don't need to describe to too heavily a tourist readings, but whether that kind of just changed her approach to certain questions in the latter part of her life, um, um, anyway, that doesn't link up to the interview stuff, but I just wanted to, to pin it there to come back to it. Um, but uh, but I think we probably should wrap up there. We've taken more than enough of Garish's time. We're a little long. So uh, I would just say thank it was such a blast to have you on, Garish. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, everyone should go find uh, the books that Garish has written and his blog and his writing about film is so wonderful. Uh, do you have any recent pieces of writing, uh, Garish, that you want to point people towards? Um, I just wrote something for Film Comment on reenactment. And I wrote something for Criterion on tourism and indigenous cinema um, just in the last um, year or so. But um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, this was an absolute blast. I learned so much about Ackerman. And it also like, it's, there's a part of me that's, a, you know, a big part of me that's a cinephile that's now, you know, is inspired to go watch a bunch of Ackerman films that I've either neglected to watch or I want to revisit. And so many of them are now more available than they have ever been. So Thank you very much to the two of you. All right. And that's a wrap for us this month. Uh, come back next month. We'll have, of course, more Ackerman to talk about as we cross into the, uh, the second half of the Ackerman year. Uh, thanks for listening. Maintenant, tout est fini. Je l'avais dit. Je le sentais. Je me voyais déjà. Serré très fort contre mon corps. Des enfants bruns aux grands yeux doux dans le magasin de la toison d'or. Lui et lui, y a rien à faire, sont l'un à l'autre. Mais si l'amour arrivait, me disait laisse la toison d'or. Moi aussi, je partirais, je laisserais tant, je brûlerais tout. Mais dans la rue, je m'éloignerais.